Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 41. We have our regulars with me, Azil and Griveth. We're back for another episode of Gigantomachia, uh, and we're continuing our volume three, into our volume three reread, which is a pretty big volume in the series. I'm sure everyone knows that, but rereading through it just really underscores how important this is for the rest of the series. So really excited to be digging into that. It's really neat to get Gigantomachia so quickly. And it's actually kind of surprising, like, oh, yeah, another one is coming out, isn't it? So I wonder if uh, that's going to have any effect on Mira at all. Like, if that's like a, if that immediacy will have any effect on him, like, oh, yeah, I guess I am published again. What do you know? Oh, look, I'm published again. This is a nice feeling to be in print. <laughs> no, probably I don't not. Think so. though. I think it's just because it's done uh, already. No, oh, I know, so, I know. I mean, yeah, it's, so... It's not like he's walking up to the Huxton Show offices and handing them this each time or anything like that, you know. This is a done deal. He's at the top of Mira Tower, you know, pacing back and forth. This is too quick. It's coming out too fast. It's ruining <laughs> the pacing. There's no anticipation. Where's yeah. the suspense? He's, you know, he's tearing up his newspaper. I don't know why he has one. But, yeah, that's what's happening. Well, this was the first time I honestly have to say that I actually was really, really excited as I was reading it. And for obvious reasons, for anyone that has oh, finished yeah. reading uh, the fourth issue, it is where all the shit goes down that has sort of been foretold and expected and built up throughout the past three issues to the point where I was actually thinking, man, couldn't it have started last issue and this be the second issue? Uh, <laughs> and then I started thinking about the story that they're telling and, and you really couldn't to get across Delos and Promes characters and their intentions with the bug people and all that kind of stuff. You really kind of had to be at the point that it is to tell the story. I, here's my, my hesitation is only that there's only two more issues after this one. And sh- to me, shit just got real. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what did you guys think of this issue? Uh, obviously uh, just general impressions first. Well, I just want you to say that I think, you know, like just regarding what you were saying, you know, there's two more issues, but you know, like it's where the fight's going to happen. And, uh, and then it's over because, you know, I think that's how Mirai, you know, conceived the whole thing, you know, like g- giving some background and showing a fight, you know, like, you know, there's a fight of Delos against Ogun and then the fight, a big fight, you know, now. And so that's, that's the climax, you know, and like there's, well, there's nothing after that because otherwise it would be anticlimactic, you know. So yeah, I just want to say that. I think it makes sense. Griff. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I pretty much agree. That, uh, I mean, it's sort of an action series in retrospect. I mean, they, they had, uh, the development and they had those conversations with Prome and set up, setting up their character. But in the end, you know, it was, you know, that wrestling match, you know, is sort of what I assume is going to be kind of, uh, a preview of what we're going to see the Giants, you know, do. He's going to use some of those same moves. Right. And it's just going to be on this, you know, huge, you know, level where I don't know how he's going to protect the city without, you know, destroy, like all monster movies, you know, the giant <laughs> city fighting monsters can destroy everything yeah. in the process. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, there's definitely the most interesting aspects to me. Again, I mean, it's not fair not judging it on its own merits, but I mean, it makes me like it more. So it's, you know, unfair in its favor, but just the, all the little berserk, you know, Mira touches, you know, that I mean, since berserk is all I see him do usually, I obviously equate everything with berserk, but, uh, it could just be, you know, things he likes and would, you know, reoccur in all his work, uh, from this point forward. It's but not, yeah, it was just interesting to see all that stuff. It's not an unfair comparison. And in fact, some of the comparisons are natural, uh, between berserk. And I, I don't think that takes away yeah. from it at all, but yeah, I, I know what you're, I know what you're saying. Cause I was kind of hesitant as well. 
to compare it to Berserk, given some of the, you know, illusions we have here. But and it's hard to tell whether they're intent or intended or just that's part of his style and this is how he does things, you know, as you say. So it is interesting. But uh we'll get into some of the Berserk comparisons in a little bit. First thing I wanted to say was, you know, I think every single episode I've recorded the podcast for this show, I kept saying, I want to get a little bit more about the Empire and about this, you know, these people and that's how the episode starts. So that's kind of awesome. And we're immediately shown this kind of disparity between, at least I'm, my, I'm perceiving it as a disparity between this, uh, these soldier people, the, I'm assuming it's like a soldier force. I don't know what to call it. The empire's army basically. And no, the or- military. Sure. Yeah. That's the word I was looking for. The military and these oracles, which are almost like, looks like a religious order sort of, or some kind of magic order, but probably not actual magic. Uh, and, it seems to me that there's some kind of uh, issue between the two groups. They've been lo- looking for the past three years for the giant that they're about to assemble upon. They just found the city, so it's taking them three years to get to this point. And I wonder if that's actually going to relate, uh, happen in a con- are they ever going to come into conflict or not, or if it's just me reading too much into their relationship. Well, I, I think the military is pretty obviously like you know subordinates to yeah. the oracles, you know. Since uh, are the ones controlling the giant monster, so you know. But uh, yeah, I think there's. I I don't think there's really a conflict, you know, between them. At least I don't think like the story will go into that, you know. Like I I think from what we see, you know, it's a little touch. Like you can see there's some tension, or at least, you know, like they they are not necessary from the same, you know, corpus. Mm -hmm. So the guy is a military man, and uh, he's concerned with. Military matters like the number of men they are losing or stuff like that, and he wants to go home and you know enjoy life. And while these girls are, you know, like you said, maybe not like wizards, but they have some kind of mystical aura around them, which mm-hmm. is again, like it, that's how it was in uh, in ancient Greece. So I think it makes sense, you know. It's a minor thing, you know. It is. I, I don't mean I don't mean to make a mountain out of a molehill. I just thought it was an interesting aside that he mentioned. It gives us a little more context about the relationship. That, that's really all I meant by that. Yeah. And you're right. There's no time to develop that kind of conflict anyway, so I don't expect it to be a major thing. Uh, well, it'll be good for when uh, they start losing and panicking and yelling at each other. I mean, <laughs> I feel like it's good setup for <laughs> sure. for that. Yeah. Another thing that's interesting about this these two characters or these two groups is obviously Mira spends a lot of time designing them. The, the love, absolutely love the character design here. The 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 amount of detail in both of their costumes or set of costumes. He didn't need to do all that. These are just characters that are on screen maybe four or five times, and we'll get a little bit more as well. But it, it says so much about their culture just by looking at them. Uh, and obviously there's the obvious relation between the Oracle's mask and the Giant's mask. I mean, it doesn't even need to be said. Um, yeah, and the helmets, you know, like I think it's pretty obvious from the design that the girl can, you know, communicate or order the Giant to move from, you know, the helmet. It's like mm-hmm. the device that allows them to control the giant. I see, yeah. Like, like, they look like antenna sort of th- type thing. Yeah. Is that what you yeah. mean? Yeah, that is cool. I didn't think, I didn't think of, about that. That makes sense. Yeah, some, yeah. some kind of very, like, rudimentary antennas, yeah, like you say. Cool. I didn't even consider that. That is cool. I just figured there was some kind of other mystical way they're, you know, manipulating it. But you're right. This actually just kind of establishes a physical means, sort of. Yeah, and you know, I think it, it uh, fits into the general design of everything the story so far, which is there's a form of technology that's shown, but it's mostly biological, and uh, what's technological seems to be rather like you know, in, at least in its shape, in its form, you know, very 
not crude, but simple. Sure. Yeah. And regarding the technology, of course, we're, we can come back to some stuff later, but I wanted to say when Prome finally in transforms and uh, goes into the ground and there's actually, it's, it is somewhat grounded in what's happening. She actually explains, yeah. uh, you know, very basically what, what, is, what is happening. You know, she has this surge of electricity that goes into the sand and from around that she begins forming uh, Gora. Well, yeah, to, to, to go back just quickly, you know, to what you asked uh, at the beginning, which is like a global view of the episode, you know, general thing is, you know, I think it was pretty fucking awesome, you know, and, uh, you know, to me, like when, when I got the title of Gigantomachia, when I first got the title, I, I told a friend who's into, you know, giant robots and stuff, I told this could very well be Mira's take on, you know, a giant robot series, you know, and I guess, I guess it turns out to be the case in a way, like such this twist on it, you know, with, you know, Gora, which is some kind of biological android, you know, mm-hmm. and it also makes me think, uh, you know, this episode is, you know, when I saw it, I was, you know, amazed and it's something Mira does very well and relatively often, you know, in a long series, it's hard to have regularly points where you're like, whoa, fuck yeah, this is, you know, awesome stuff like that. But the thing is, I think he's really very talented at setting these things up and as, you know, Gigento Makia shows us. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember actually what my initial impression was about what the series was going to be. I, I think within, I don't know, the first two issues, I, I kind of assumed that it would eventually be a giant robot type thing. But that being said, whether I saw it coming or not, it's it's really fucking exciting. <laughs> yeah. To finally see. And the way it's presented is just so stylistic and awesome. I love the first shot we get of it coming through the sand, its hands spread apart. Just yeah, really, really, uh, Gr- grabbing the elephant squids and fucking, yeah. you know, just crushing them. <laughs> right. Just kind of doing, you know, doing away with these, you know, giant forces that were, you know, so lethal before. It actually makes me wonder what the actual conflict is going to be because it looks like the fight's already over. This guy looks like a fucking badass going against, to me, it looks like a lesser creature. This other giant doesn't look very intimidating anymore, you know? Look at this Gora design. Looks fucking massive and impressive, you know? That being and the said, other giant seems like it's asleep, you know, in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, but it's a bit more massive, you know. Like as sure. far as size goes, it's. I think it's going to be resilient, but you know, yeah, I, I'm actually also very curious to see how the fight goes. Sure. You know, very similar to you know the precedent they set in the fight against Ogun was that he couldn't use basic tactics against him. He had to use you know kind of suplex type maneuvers to use his own weight against him. You know, during the fight with Ogun. Yeah. I wonder if it'll be similar with that, or maybe that was just showing us how you know, Delos thinks when he's, you know, in a fight. Yeah. Well, that being said, uh, what, like you mentioned earlier, you know, when Prome, you know, uh, is talking about the transformation of, you know, Gora, how she, she creates it, you know, which actually it's very scientific. It's not just, you, you said it was, you know, based in, you know, science, but it's actually, I think it's quite precise, actually, you know, she says a lot of stuff that are very basic, you know, physics or, chemistry, you know, stuff like, you know, phase transformation or changing, you know, on the atomic level, you know, stuff like that. There's a lot of, you know, such things. So I think it's pretty, you know, like pretty grounded, you know. Yeah. yeah and um, in any case, you know, when you see the description of uh, Gora, it seems to be quite, you know, like sturdy and, you know, like that other thing, as you know, is probably going to be fucking badass in order to be able to stand, you know, against, you know, Gora, even, even just for a little while because... You know, like it has, you know, nectar for its blood and oricalcum for, you know, mm-hmm. for its bones. So, thing is pretty much fucking invulnerable. 
Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of, just for, for in terms of the text, for guys that don't notice, but it's using a lot of real-world terms in it. Like, she describes, you know, 90 tetrajoule, is that what the term is? Yeah, tetrajoules. Uh, tetrajoules, excuse me, for the actual energy output when the transformation begins. She talks about forming a carbon weave for its spine, I think it is. I couldn't quite tell. There's a lot of, like, you know, real-world terms that are used to describe what's happening on the page. Yeah, uh, and obviously it's kind of you know it's kind of like Star Trek science. Like, yeah, it has a term, but it's still sort of mystical in how it actually works. But it is really uh, interesting that he took that approach. Not surprising at all, given as we've said multiple times now, this is a series that it's technolo- technology based, not magic based. So of course it's grounded in a certain way. So that being said, you know, like when you see Prome, you know, like transforming and enveloping, you know, Delos. You know, I'm, I, I gotta say, I was like, yeah, well, I guess, you know, once they called our spirits, they weren't exactly mistaken, you know. Because, That's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That is the, the outlier, for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I have a hard time rationalizing that, you know. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, why, you know, maybe the phase, you know, well, yeah, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> I still think, I mean, this is another question I was gonna ask you guys was, now that we've actually seen her activator power, or user power beyond, you know, kissing beetles, um, do you think it's too early to kind of get, get some more introspection on what she is? Like to me now more than ever, it seems to me she's kind of a blending of either nature and science or nature and technology, some kind of kind of creature that is, is, is at once both natural and, you know, t- t- technology based. Well, you know, it's honestly, it's very hard to say, you know, it's yeah. really like, you know, she's obviously got powers that's way beyond, you know, that of a human, mm-hmm. but you know, as far as what she is and, you know, how she was created or how she came to be. We know she's from, like, the old world. So she's a product of, you know, uh, bioengineering that made your creatures so, you know, or creatures so powerful they became like gods, you know, and like those would be the gods of Olympus, uh, you know, Captain Guy refers to, or is she something else, spirit of the earth? So I don't know. But one thing is since she... You know, in the previous episode, she mentioned Gaia, you know, uh, in relation to Happy, the god, you know, of the, of the Scarabic guys. So, and uh, I, I don't think she's the same type of being as, you know, Gaia, which is like some kind of primordial, you know, god, you know, like a giant, you know, ancient giant related to the earth. So I think she's a different type of being. But other than that, there's not much we can guess so far, except what I said in the thread, you know. About- well, I think what you said in the thread was interesting because you're, you're setting up this conflict between Old gods and new gods, basically, which is... Well, yeah, which is what the, the, yeah. Tale, the original tale of Gigento Make is about. So I yes. continuously think about it in those terms, you know. Like, when I saw that, I was saying, like, okay, so the thing is, Delos is going to be, like, some kind of equivalent of Heracles, you know, like the human guy, and Prome is going to be, like, somehow an equivalent of, you know, an Olympian god, you know, who's fighting against all the gods, or something like that. You know, it doesn't have to be exactly the same thing, but... I, I'm just guessing that you know general you know conflict is going to be mirrored in in some way. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it was sort of uh, frustrates the wrong word, but uh, again, we're not able to see the full scope of the conflict between sides here, and thus yeah. it's it's hard to understand some of the character motivations. For ex- as in a hypothetical example, what is the actual goal of the empire? Obviously, it's to control gods, but we don't know the nature of these gods. Are these natural yeah. born things? Are these uh, creatures that were created be- as a result of this being in a far-flung future, some biological weapon? You know, we, we don't know these things, so it's hard yeah. to know well, all that's going on. 
Indeed, and I think again it's uh, one of Mira's strength, you know, much like he knows, you know, how to set things up so that when like the the shit hits the fan, it's you know, it really hits it. Yeah. I, I think he's really keeping that for the end, you know, yeah. like in the last issue we'll get, you know, the revelation that promise this and the guys are that and the pair wants this and you know and so like you know, you're holding your breath until the very last moment. You know, the <laughs> part where it's not like next issue will be like, oh, all right, well, you know, oh, it was nice, but I don't really care what's next. It's not going to be like that. And actually, I'm curious to see how he, you know, handles like the ending of Gigantomachia because, yeah. you know, we don't know how Berserk will end and it's in, in a long time, but I'll be curious to see how, how he does it. He kills everybody. Yeah. Everything is destroyed. Promise sacrifices uh, Scarabay, you know, much like Griffiths will do in the end. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, Azil, did you say that Agora was actually white? It's like bone white? Yeah, he's uh, actually chalk white. Chalk, you know? okay. Yeah, the color of chalk, which is, uh, you know, it's an original, you know, thing to say. But, yeah, that, that's how he's described he as being completely white, you know, like chalk. So Yeah, that is interesting. And whenever I saw his design, my first thought was actually Giver, which is, you know, that, that shows my limited exposure to giant mecha or robot anime to begin with is it's a biological based, you know, robot design. Uh, I don't know of many other designs that are similar to that. As you all think you mentioned Mazinger in terms of. Yeah, well, the thing is, you know, we know Mura's a very big fan of, you know, Gonagai, like, you know, there's Devilman and that kind of stuff, but he said, you know, in the past that he was his favorite mangaka, and mm. the thing is, uh, Mazinga, you know, was, uh, you know, the first robot, robot, you know, anime that had uh, a pilot inside, you know, like, you know, before Tetsujin, you know, was controlled via a remote control, which is actually interesting because, you know, I'm going a bit, you know, far here, but you can do a parallel between, you know, the Titans, you know, that's controlled by, via, you know, remotely by the woman, you know, the oracle, you know, in this cabin or whatever on the giant snail. I actually love the design of the snail anyway. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I totally love it. I want the same. And, uh, and apparently with, you know, uh, Gora, which is a completely different design, seems more refined and which yeah. has, you know, uh, Prome, you know, through some kind of, you know, window or whatever. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that, that design is very powerful. The way the skull is split, you know, yeah. And, uh, with the, you know, the glass, you know, with the, what's the pilot, you know, at the center, that's very similar. Well, to me, it, it, I was instantly reminded of Mazinga, but, you know, I think it's, uh, it's an homage, but it could be, it could be anything, you know, like only Miura I could say. Sure. Yeah. And, and the rest of the, you know, like that's just that's that part, you know, for the rest of the design, it's just completely dissimilar. So. Yeah. It's not like I'm trying to say, oh, this is a ripoff of this. I'm, I'm just trying to understand kind of his influence and what he was going for when yeah. he made the design. That's really all. Of course, and that's natural. And actually, I think it makes sense. Well, the thing is, you know, like it would make sense for him to do uh, a small, you know, uh, homage to, you know, Mazinga because mm-hmm. he's a fan of Gonaga and because Mazinga is, you know, like one of the, you know, really iconic, you know, robot, you know, manga. It's, it's really, you know, one of the iconic ones, which mm-hmm. is known all throughout the world. But as far as Gora's design generally, I mean, when you look at it, it looks as much like the crisis suit as <laughs> anything else, you know, like it's, because it's, it's, you know, related, biological. you know, yeah, biological. Yeah. That's a good point. I didn't think about that, but you're right. It is a little similar to crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it fits. And, and the way, the fact it is biological fits, like the theme of the series, which is, you know, mutation, like, you know, the, the guys, the Mew, you know, like they're called Mew, the mm-hmm. Scarabay, 
it's mu, it's, you know, that's where the word mutant comes from, you know. So, like, there's the hues, the humans, and the mu, the mutants. And, you know, there's the giants and stuff, and they're mutated, they live in symbiosis. You know, all these things, I think the theme, you know, revolves around, you know, bioengineering and, you know, biotechnologies. And I think that's really one of the, the themes of the, of this, you know, uh, series. Sure. We touched on it earlier, but I wanted to go over really quickly some of the things that reminded me of Berserk, and I'm sure you guys had the same thought. You know, the, yeah. the, the two strongest ones to me were on the, are both can be seen on the last page. One that uh, there's a Shirk and Guts type relationship happening between the two, uh, similar to when Shirk is guiding Guts when he's in the armor, and also the eyes of Gora look really similar to, and it's 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 probably just merely a a visual similarity. It's yeah. happening, obviously, but whenever uh, the blaze wheel uh, or was it blaze rod? I can't remember. Anyway, blaze wheel was happening when guts was basically basically piggybacking on the blaze wheel to attack at Daiba. He had a similar look in his eye whenever that thing happened. It yeah. also kind of reminded me just of like the intense look he'll have sometimes. You know, sometimes it's just a stylistic thing by mm-hmm. Mira, where you know the eye will appear to be like you know sort of made you know with these spinning lines to just sure. I guess show yeah. denote like intensity. Yeah. He sort of just has that look all the time in his eye. Well, I have a different thing, you know, that reminded you of Berserk, which is a bit, you know, a bit, you know, more far-fetched. It is, you know, on the page where Prome envelops Delos in mm-hmm. the, you know, life support bubble. You know, what you see Delos is being surrounded by some kind of gel, or I don't know what it is. It really reminded me of when Mosgus, with his feathers, you know, tried to choke guts, you know, when they're fighting. I don't know huh. why. You no, know, you know, dude, I had the exact same thought. I just didn't voice it because it was indeed far fetched. I mean, something about that panel really reminds <laughs> me about Berserk. Yeah, and and I was actually thinking of guts in the armor for some reason. But um, yeah, there is something evocative there. I think it's just maybe the paneling and the look <laughs> on his face. I don't know. But you're right, though. It's something about it. Yeah, is very- well, it's, I think it's a way. You know, like. Prome also when she does that spinning thing, like some kind of antenna where mm-hmm. the energy comes from, you know, when she's transforming, it does this kind of organic, but it looks like feathers, you know, so it's, it's reminiscent of Mosgus with his feather, or even Griffiths, you sure. know, it's, it does, you know, to me, it's reminiscent. And that ball, you know, she forms, you know, I mean, it doesn't really have any equivalent in Berserk yet, but like, I feel like it's something we could see, you know, at some point in Berserk, you know. I don't know, that just a general design, you know. I don't know. Sure, sure. Well, I guess it's by the same author, so it makes sense. <laughs> well, one of the other key things I wanted to touch on was, I'm totally geeking out on this, and I apologize for a moment, <laughs> but this is just something I thought was fascinating, was, you know, we see Promes design from the very beginning. She had some kind of curious kind of, like, items on her. She has this flower that goes down the side, and on the other ear, she has a seashell design, and... At the time, I just thought it was sort of an association of her in the natural world. And then we see the Empire has this same insignia on their helmets, on the banner man that's holding the banner. At the top of the uh, carriage, at the top of the snail, it has the same symbol of this, this seashell. And now it, it totally throws a curveball into what I expected the relationship to be here. You know, there is some kind of relation between Prome and the Empire. Now, as you and I have tossed around a couple of ideas and thread about what that might be, uh, obviously, we don't know. There's no answer right now, but um, it kind of gives us an, underst- um, an understanding of some kind of previous. Maybe it's an artifact that both cultures were based on. Maybe or, or Prome. Maybe maybe there's some, somehow uh, used to worship the old gods, and Prome is one of the old gods. In their thought, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. So the thing is, is a guy says, as a military guy, he says, you know, 
Like they could manage this thanks to Titans and not to the gods of Olympus. So mm. it implies that they know of these gods and that these guys may have, you know, helped them in the past or, you know, not, or we don't know anyway, but in any case, it implies some sort of relationship and uh, the fact they're not their favor anymore. And another thing you can notice, which is not the seashell design, but you know, on the guys, you know, breastplate, there's a face, you know, face of uh, like, like, one of the titans, you know. Hmm. And uh, these faces were so prominent uh, in the flashback when you see Delos in the arena, you know, he yeah. was fighting in some kind of colism. Yeah. And there were these faces everywhere. So I think these are also a symbol of the Empire and that the Empire was built, you know, like not maybe on titans, but around them. In any case, Arons had their power to control these giants. Mm-hmm. So I think there's these two influences there, the, the seashell, which might be like their national emblem or something like that. And the fact their power is, you know, uh, seated, you know, through the titans and the oracles and that kind of stuff. So, in any case, yeah, I think there's a relationship. And uh, it probably ties into, you know, how Delos and Prome met, you know, like when Delos decided to change his life, you know, and he escaped or whatever, you know, how the way he met Prome, I think that will, you know, shed uh, all the light we need, you know, on these, you know, relationships. Sure. Just the amount of information we're given in this, in this, episode just really kind of indicates the, the, the broader picture here. I, I didn't really put all the pieces together until now, though, but you know, we talked about, the, we've seen this culture, this this race, the Hue race, being basically, it's related, they're basically stomping on all the other surrounding races. They're just completely subjugating them or salting the earth, is another phrase that was used in terms of them basically exterminating other life, and also kind of putting them all in the arena together to fight. And it makes me think that it probably is 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 a direct result of this race getting a hold of the power to control giants. Like if giants were a pre-existing force and one race managed to be able to control it, it would completely demolish anything in its path. Yeah, so and they're also they also they also after their own giants. You know, like they want to get you know the Scarabis giants. You know, like which is. She's not Gaia, it's actually called Happy, you know, it's some kind oh, it's of- Happy, sorry, right. Yeah, it's a minor deity or something like that. In any case, they're after this guy. So, it's yeah. interesting, you know, the way, you know, they do it, you know. So, or at least what they're after, I really get to wonder, you know, they want this, you know, power of giants and probably, yeah, to, you know, like to rule the world or anything like that, but, you know, there's things to think about. Sure. Well, one thing I wonder, just sort of in a vague sense, is if there is going to be a reveal of, uh, you know, any or all of this information, you know, by the end, or if uh, Mira is just going to leave that sort of in the background, in the details, and to our imagination to just sort of notice, and that it's just going to be, you know, sort of the action of, you know, these people's lives right now, well, rather than I... like tying it up neatly. I think it's going to be a bit of both. Like, you know, I think we will get, you know, some information about, you know, who Dills and Prome met or who Prome is, what she is, and maybe what the Empire wants and what they are doing against it. But I think a lot of it is going to be left to the imagination, you know. Like, I think he'll cover only what he deems important for the story and leave a lot of it to our imagination, you know, within the, you know, as, as, what this is, which is a, a short story, so yeah, I think we won't get every single answer. Yeah, there's there's an opportunity at the end for some really brief exposition in, in terms of the background and, and also what's ahead, yeah. given whatever the con- conclusion is of this series. It would it would not be difficult to convey very briefly uh, large chunks of the story if they really needed to. I think I, th- I think you yeah. can do it. I mean, it would probably be stuff just to sort of 
point us in certain directions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I totally. think I think he will, and uh, you know, pretty much in the final episode, you know, I, I think that's what will be done. Like the next one will be mostly fight, you know, and uh, I think the next one will be like that. Yeah. Well, another thing that's interesting to to how to say to mention is that you know, uh, Delos and Prome were originally not going to fight this battle, you know, like you know when Ogun, you know, in the previous episode tells him, you know, it's not your fight, such a thing. They actually decide to to leave, you know, and uh, yeah. I, I think Delos is the one that chose to. To, you know, to come back and to fight. You know, he's the one because he saw the kids. You know, mm-hmm. in the previous episode, you see him looking at the kids getting on the scarabay, and Promet tells him, you know, that they'd rather all die, you know, than you know, just you know, flee or let their giants be be taken or anything like that. So I think that's why they chose to fight. And I think it will also be interesting to know exactly what it is they were doing and uh, what is their goal. I mean, wh- why is Delos, you know, wandering the desert? Why did he come for these guys? You know, everything like that. Yeah, it's actually interesting because throughout the series, he's actually, you know, relented from using her power. There are multiple instances where she's she's offered her power and he keeps declining politely, kind yeah. of embarrassing, embarrassingly and a couple times as well. And, and and whenever this moment arrives, when he sees these kids being attacked, he just jumps at it and just calls out her name, and she just says yes, and then she knows what's happening. It's a really cool moment, actually, seeing Delos fired up like that. Yeah, I uh, again, it's I think it's something Mira does does very well. Like you know, he plays and you know you know as a relationship and hints at you know stuff we don't know her power in a some kind of comic relief way. You know, yeah. un- until you know it gets serious and then. It's fucking badass time. Yeah. I wonder, whenever Prome was talking to him during the fight with Ogun, was she actually implying that he could turn into the giant right there? <laughs> was she going to pull all that out, you know, in the middle of the fight? Well, I don't know, but, you know, I don't think they could do much to her, you know. Like, it's what she tells, you know, like what she tells him when she gets a tomato thrown on her, which is she's not the kind of being that can be harmed, you know. That, no, no, that no. Way. I didn't mean that. I mean, whenever she tells Delos that... You know, you could have just used my power and it wouldn't have oh, been yeah. that difficult, you know. What, what was she actually implying? That yeah. <laughs> stomp on him as Gora would have been a little overkill. Yeah, you know, who knows, actually. Yeah, maybe. Just maybe stomp on this guy already. It could have just been like a, a portion of her power or something like that. Who knows? <laughs> you know, when she says Ogun's punch, you know, packs a ton, you know, like one ton power. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what Gora would be, you know. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> A megaton, you know, like a fucking atomic bomb, you know. Well, get, uh, given that they detail some of those things in this episode, maybe we'll find out tomorrow on the next issue, like 5,000 yeah. megaton punch or something like that. <laughs> well, this know. is just like one of those cool things, but I did appreciate him smashing like the elephant heads like yeah. in both hands as an introduction. Just <laughs> and also there's that, that two-page shot of it exploding in the background, you know, like, you know, yeah. the, Michael, the Michael Bay walking away from explosion <laughs> shot. Yes. Yeah. And also just that it has no effect on him, like it doesn't yeah, totally. bother him or damage him at all. Well, that's the effect, of, that's the that's the natural effect of walking away from an explosion is that you're actually unharmed by it if you yeah. walk away from that. <laughs> You know, yeah, I wonder, I wonder who it will be with a giant, you know, since they have these, you know, I mean, it, it, at least this one has that impassive face, you know, like, yeah. we don't even know if it's actually, you know, it, it, you know, what if it's its real face and like it gets a punch in the face, it's like, oh shit, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I would love to see that mask crack. And then yeah, have the mask I, fall off, you know? Yeah, I, I well, think if it comes like, off while well, they still fight, you know, well, it'll be one of these things where they'll fight, but then, you know, maybe the, the giant will realize it was being controlled and it yeah. has no motivation, you know, for this battle. 
I think, like that. I think that's the natural conflict because there's this tenuous yeah. relationship with the oracles and the, and the giant. I, I think that could be exploited maybe, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe it'll just go down in a couple punches and that'll be it. You know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, actually, it's a pretty cool idea. Maybe, you know, when the mask falls off, the giant will like rebel against its master or something yeah. like that, you know, because yeah, yeah, that would be interesting to see. That actually a really cool idea is, you know, suddenly the tables turn if Gora and this thing and the uh, Hoppy are, you know, allied together and then they have, you know, weapons against the Empire. Yeah. Just a thought. I guess that'll do it. Uh, I could probably talk a little bit more about it, but we have a lot more to talk about today. Really, really enjoyed this issue. And, and I mean, it, it made me feel bad for, you know, not doubting, but being a little bored with previous issues, honestly. So... I'll, I'll be honest. I wasn't that excited until now in the series. Um, well, it kind of it wet my curiosity for what was happening in the background of the series, but the actual action with the wrestling and stuff didn't really interest me really at all. And, but this is very exciting. You're so. not getting the WWE pay channel, I take it. Then you know, no. <laughs> well, that, that being said, you know, I think you're a bit harsh on it because, yeah, I mean, it's not you know, it's wrestling, so it's not. Uh, Sword fighting action or anything like that, but I think it was pretty cool, you know. For for what it is, it was yeah. different, but uh, but I guess you know it's always a, the thing is with a new series, you you gotta warm up on the characters, you know, in general, you know, and everything like that. But I think it was pretty cool. I I didn't mind the previous episodes. I think there was like a pressure on it from the beginning, just because we knew how short it was gonna be. There, you know, you tell yourself to sort of you know oh, give something time and you know. Get well, acclimated to it, but I mean, you're like, wait, you know, come on! <laughs> <laughs> it's the same problem I expressed when the series first started, is we didn't know the direction it was going to take, and so there's this built-up, as you say, anticipation of what it's going to be, and until you know what it's going to be, yeah, it's, it's hard to not be a little disappointed by what you see in that process. So, sort of like your Cause little... Because it, it can be anything before yeah. you actually see it, so then, you know, there's just disappointment yeah. in it totally. being, you know, one thing. Yep. It's, it's not dissimilar from, you know... Weekly readers shouldn't be critics, you know, the, of that little uh, <laughs> yeah. episode image you made. <laughs> well, um, let's go ahead and move on to uh, our Volume 3 reread, and we'll be back in just a moment. When we started the reread project, I actually, you know, I knew we would have no trouble talking about volume three. Uh, volumes one and two, I didn't know if I could make those into full episodes, but, you know, we did it and we had a good time doing it. Volume three, the issue is not what can we talk about. It's like, where do we stop talking about it? There's just so much shit to talk about in this goddamn volume. So let's go ahead and get down to it. This is, I mean, to me, this is one of the most significant volumes. Given what happens in terms of the God Hand and all the things that are explained about the nature of the Berserk world, sacrifices, the the Vortex, the, the God Hand, uh, apostles, all these kind of things. It, it really lays the groundwork for our understanding of that part of the series and more so than any other section. You know, you don't get much of the God Hand FaceTime in the entire series, but here it is, almost half the volume is that. And, and yeah. details about how they work. It's really an extraordinary look at that part of the series, which is fundamental and yet rarely elaborated on. And, and yeah. so it's really a treat to go back and look at how he introduced these concepts and yet 
draws from them as if it's a gospel and yet doesn't really need to reiterate them beyond this volume because it's said so well. So that's sort of a, a general overview of why I think volume three is fucking huge and significant. It's also a culmination of what we get to see in the first two volumes, you know, like we're introduced to some concepts like the brand, you know, the fact that was sacrificed, you know, apostles, he has the apostles about, you know, those guys, how to get to them, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing is, you know, everything culminates there. Well, you know, you are explained and shown, you know, like, you know, what he was after and what these beings are and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's pretty effective. You know, it's like a just, you know, parallel to what I was saying earlier about the way Mura is very good at setting things up so that when you get the big reveal, it's like, wow, you know, you don't even know where to start, you know, being amazed. <laughs> yeah, I remember I'm trying to think of like my first view of this, of this episode. I, I wonder if an, an average reader could catch everything in one re- one reading of this volume because it's it's it covers so much about uh, the way the world works. I wonder if it would require additional rereads or, or not. It just, it's a lot that's conveyed here. Um, I feel yeah. like these episodes are like, for a lot of people, they were like the required like cheat reading for if you watched the anime first. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then it was like, oh, my God, you know, it's the continuation, you know. <laughs> it's like, here it is, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it I just, remember. It pretty much yeah, cont- yeah, takes you back to that ending, you know, again, where, you know, and r- interestingly enough, I mean, those are the only two times we – we really get this with them yeah. summoned and actually yeah. physically there. Totally. Anyway, I remember when I, I, I saw the anime, you know, and, uh, I was, you know, looking forward to getting the manga. So I bought it and everything like that, you know, and, uh, like my plan was, I, I was, I just meant to read, you know, like, because I, I like to start with, you know, volume one and do things in order. I don't like to skip, but I just plan to just, you know, like read through them, you know, quickly to get to the part I, I hadn't seen, you know, Mm-hmm. And I was like, what, 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 <laughs> what, what? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and it's pretty crazy. And then, you know, there's a golden age that mostly the same, but, you know, you know, there's some parts. And I remember, yeah, these parts, I was like, what the fuck, man? What, what is this? And, uh, I, like in a good way, you know, I was like, fuck, man, it's great. So, so much better, you know, so much better. I remember that, that, that those were my thoughts, you know, like mm-hmm. everything that I might, might have found, you know, a bit, you know, clumsy in the, in the TV series. I was like, fuck, this is great. You know, this is like great from the beginning, you know, like everything is great. And, uh, as I decrease volume three, where you get so much stuff, it's, you know, it's hard to even, you know, start, you know, talking about it, like you said. Yeah. Well, we'll go through it. Um, Starts out with guts on the on the ground, and Puck actually intervenes and pinpoints kind of the nat- the the nature of the problem with apostles is that you know they're they they're they're monsters, but they're basically you know broken humans at their at their heart. Uh, the yeah. count ran away from the pain in his heart, unable to cope with the life or the the life that was dealt to him, and becoming a monster. It's it's a clever way, actually. Until you get to this point in the series, you just think the Count is another monster and that Apostles are just monsters. But really, each one has kind of a tragic story because to get to the point where they were able to make a sacrifice, they had to be almost ruined to a certain extent. And yeah. it, adds, it adds a nuance to every Apostle you see on the page. Yeah. You know, I, I think this actually is a, it's a pretty important speech. Like, you know, we are talking about the God Hand and everything and how it's, it's a big deal. But I think this speech in itself is, is very important, you know, like, you know, for one thing, because it establishes Puck as 
kind of uh, an important character, not just a sidekick, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, the way he actually saves guts and he talks for quite a long time, you know, like 20 pages. And uh, the, the tirade he gives account about, you know, like despite his posturing as, you know, a big monster, he's still a weak human being at his core, much like what he was making fun of guts for, you know. I find it quite interesting and it's something that's still pertinent like nowadays you know like mm-hmm. you know even though you know magic was introduced you know or as expanded you know with different types of magic and stuff you still have this aspect where apostles are very powerful but they are human in, in nature and so as a you know god hand you know so i i think it's a very interesting speech you know this early in the series which is again you know like the thing is you know, the bases are being, you know, put down, you know, right now, that early on, and it goes on through the entire series, it's still, you know, relevant, still proper, still correct. Yeah, no. Yeah, and we see it reinforced again and again with uh, Roisin and, uh, you know, yeah. sort of a similar thing. She doesn't have the same kind of, I mean, well, that's the other thing. A lot of it is also all their showings of power and, you know, I'm, oh, you're such a worm, I'm so above you. Is it's It's vanity and it's, you know, it's trying to, you know, elevate themselves from you know where they had fallen in the yeah. first place Indeed. you know so so and that's yeah a very interesting uh portion and, and that it, introduces and again it's very human in you know again in nature yeah. like this vanity this way you know it's uh it's something that's very human and it's interesting that puck which is not human you know like he's a more of an elemental based being you know he's the one that you know gives his speech account you know and, and I, I find that quite interesting do you guys have any pity for the Count after we learn some of these details? You know, actually, there's some panels of him, like when Puck is yelling at him. You see some panels where his face, you know, and again, that's a, a testimony to, you know, Mura's, you know, ability with expressions. You see a panel of his face, especially when Puck t- tells him he's a weak human. That's, mm-hmm. yeah, actually, I feel, ba- I feel, you know, not bad for the guy, but you can tell it's, it's getting through to him, you know, and he's like, you know, he's you know he's touched and then he gets yeah. angry well he even spare, says he'll spare him you know yeah and, and then of course he turns right back around of course once the figure <laughs> falls out and he sees Teresa yeah. but uh for a moment there he was uh you know being at least a little, a little soft touch for a giant slug monster yeah uh, it's the same goes for when he sees Teresa it's even you know yeah. like then he actually starts crying you know right that's it again was- you know yeah go ahead no, I, would, no, I was gonna go ahead on tangent you go on I was just going to say that, uh, again, you know, something like, it's different from, you know, what happens with Roshin or anything like that, but it shows, it humanizes the monster, you know, like, it, this, you know, doesn't last long because Theresia comes and she's, like, she's frightened and runs away because she sees her father as a monster, he really is, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, it's, it's very, you know, how to say, again, it's something that could have not been there. But it would have lessened the series, you know. Oh, and the yeah. fact, the fact, Mira takes the time, takes the five pages to put it there. Well, it's just, you know, it's a small detail, but then bam, you know, like the, the depth is, you know, carried over. And what's great is, of course, you know, like we see Theresia running away and getting behind a pillar, and that plays a role just a few pages later, you know. And yeah. it's again a testimony to how Mira can, you know, you know, what's a testament maybe rather testimony to how he can, you know, set things up, you know, very cleverly. Mm-hmm. Also, visually speaking, I have to point out the page where after the after Teresa runs away and is frightened by him, and the count turns around, you know, literally turns on Puck. Yeah. The yeah. the the contrast, you know, it's like a from a, it's like a horror. It's 
the true horror comic shot, you know, the way they use black yeah. and the contrast and everything to show how angry the Count is and how monstrous he looks. I don't think he looks, I mean, it's made him if he looks scarier on any other page. No, actually, yeah. I, I think there's a, the page in which he's the most scary looking. Like, he looks truly like a, yeah. you know, a monster, you know, like, you know, With it's like this murderous most, intention. Yeah, yeah, that's a, the most, you know, uh, how to say, scary he is, you know, throughout the entire, you know, volume and even series. <laughs> well, um, right before some of the parts we were talking about, uh, Puck makes off with the Behirat and, uh, you know, it's sort of opening its eyes at Puck a couple times. Yeah. It does, it, it does that more for Puck than anybody else, you know, and it makes me wonder if it's just like a joke, a gag, the, the, the Betchy and Puck relationship, or if the Behirat's kind of responding to something about Puck, maybe because he's an elf. Maybe because there's something special about Puck. I don't know. Well, you know, I think there's also a thing we didn't talk about it in the in the first two volumes, but mm-hmm. you know, even this early in the series, even with the bleak, you know, outlook and the way Guts is, there's still, you know, quite a bit of comic relief. And you know, even in this scene, like when you see, you know, Puck is carrying the Barret, like you know, from a nostril and you know its mouth, you yeah. know, <laughs> and things like you know, you nah. know, I mean. So- <laughs> Yeah, the face of the thing is, you know, it's quite hilarious. You know, while the count is, you know, smashing things up, you know, and so Puck is, you know, flying hurriedly with the thing like that. It's, it's pretty funny, you know, and it's, I think it's, it's very effective, particularly <laughs> given what the beer is. Yeah. Make, to turning that into a comical gag with its teeth, like, it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think it goes to show again that, you know, why some readers may not realize it. This kind of humor and the way Murad does things where Berserk is a series that takes itself seriously, but at the same time, not too much, you know, and knows how to, you know, make fun of itself or have fun, you know, even during action. Why well, it was there from the very beginning. Yeah. So basically Puck was able to provide a distraction for Guts to have an opening, but there's this neat moment when Guts comes back. Whenever he comes yeah. back from the dead, there's this, you know, I think Mir is graphically building us towards the moment when he pulls Teresa out. Cause he looks yeah. very menacing whenever he comes back from, back to the fight. He's, you know, his face, the way, uh, he's portrayed is much more monstrous and like, basically he'll do whatever it takes at that point. And, uh, he seizes Teresa and for the reader, what? it must be a kind of a dark moment. You know, before he gets that, that, uh, he gets that sort of hard, distant, cold look, yeah. you know, to his face yeah. where it just looks like, you know, the cold blooded, you know, killer look where he's letting them know that he's serious so and being it's sort said, of, he's disconnected. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, before that, just before that, there's a, a, a thing that, you know, I find very interesting is the fact you know, like when he rises from the dead, you know, uh, swing some knives to save, you know, Puck's life. Puck and him have a very emotional moment, you know, right. like when Puck is crying and such. And, you know, Guts actually a panel where he, he's speechless. He doesn't say anything, but, you know, I think it's one of the parts where you can see the bond. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, Guts is actually, he doesn't just slap him down or anything like that. He has that very human and I don't know, he, he seems to be touched. Then yeah, the, he, he's got his head down and you can see the ellipses going, you know, and he, he does have this, it's the first sort of soft look from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. And, he's, and you know, then the, the count, of course, he's menacing and, you know, attacking and, and then Guts gets serious and, you know, like pushes, you know, Puck back, you know, but gently, you know. And, mm-hmm. and what, what I find really interesting is that contrast, you know, like the Guts was just at that moment, he was, you know, like almost a softy, you know, and then the count, you know, uh, makes himself, you know, noticeable and guts 
I guess, like you guys were saying, you know, just, you know, a hard look. And mm-hmm. now it's, you know, now he'll do anything, you know, like the rage. It's right. a rage, you know, he's blinding him to anything else. That being said, I, I never actually, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that he never actually intended to do anything to Teresa, but it, it gives him the opening he needed to use the cannon. And he used it ex- exactly what I imagine he expected to use. Was, yeah. And that's um, what I was referring to when I said earlier, like you see her running behind the pillar, you mm-hmm. know, and then Guts lets himself be hit on purpose by the Count, you know, mm-hmm. to be propelled in her direction. And then he uses her as a distraction for the cannon. Yeah, I, I think it's very cleverly put. It also shows, you know, that Guts is canny. Like, you know, in uh, Volume 2, you, you know, Puck reflects on the fact Guts, you know, is not just a guy with a big sword. He's a very good swordsman. Mm-hmm. And this shows us that Guts is not just a good swordsman. He's also a man that can use, you know, you know, cunning, you know, when it's necessary or can even be, you know, I wouldn't say vicious, but retort, you know, like, you know, he's, you know, he's going to plan and use anything to his advantage, you know, when he's fighting an apostle. I mean, it's a very, I mean, just as his skills as a tactician, because he sort of realizes he can't beat, I mean, he's already been beat, defeated by the count essentially in a toe to toe kind of fight. And even then he was trying to use trickery. So he already knows, even though he's, he looks like he's coming straight at him, you know, you can see that look in his eye when he lets the count kick him. That, you know, he's already got a plan in motion to give him the advantage. Right. Yeah. So after the cannon shot, um, I actually missed it in the panel. I don't have the volume in front of me. His fingers are broken. Was it the recoil that happens? I don't even remember. But anyways, his his hands are broken. His hand got smashed, I think. Oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's from earlier, actually. So, Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he has to use his teeth. And <laughs> yes, I remember, yeah, the famous I'm, teeth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dragon Slayer move. He needed some. He needed some crowns after this. Feelings, <laughs> definitely. His, his, his mouth bleeds and everything. Yeah, you actually see his mouth. You know, from the you know two different sides bleeding on the sword. He's pretty. He's pretty hardcore, actually. You know, I almost mm-hmm. wish Mira would have shown a teeth being dislodged. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, he can't just be missing a teeth. You know, all his life. So, but yeah, he's, he's pretty hardcore shot. It's a crazy moment, and it's also it, it, it accentuates how exhausting this fight is, both for the reader as well. Because you know each of the, each of the sides of this fight have taken serious you know wounds and have gotten back up. You know, but at this point, this is like the finishing blow. This is put everything into one swing. You know, and he actually he managed to behead the count at that point. Yeah, you know, putting into like applying the knowledge he got from fighting Zondark, which is. Like the head is a weak point, you know. That's also a thing, you know, like he doesn't hit the head, you know, for no reason. He does it because, you know, like he knows that's a weak point of the count. Otherwise, he will regrow his, you know, arms sure. and limbs and shit like that. Sure. Well, and the count, there's a funny moment in volume two where the count actually tells him what the weak spot is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah thanks for that. <laughs> and it is so interesting as these pages go on how the count's demeanor has utterly changed. He's now terrified of guts. And terrified of yeah. what's about to happen to him. And Guts just dives right into this, you know, and just goes all out, showing us just how crazy he has become over the past few years. Yeah. Well, that's the yeah, same. I mean, when he I re-enters the fray, I mean, and Puck notes, you know, it's not just that he gets the hard look, but, you know, he also notes that, you know, Guts looks like he looks like he's laughing. So it's really a kind of madness yeah. that yeah. he's going in there with. I also say that, you know, the whole, the tooth swing with the dragon slayer this is a part where in hindsight the whole interstice and you know knowing you know the potential of increased you know power and supernatural ability through his will comes in handy when you read it again later (laughs) 
Yeah, even though he's just like he's not lifting the sword itself with his teeth, he's using the, the yeah, he's arm. bracing it on his arm, you know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty you know inhuman move, you know. That Mura, I think, uh, references when he has him, you know, hold uh, the tip of Griffith's sword, you know, later on in the series. But uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. So <clears throat> I have a rhetorical question for you guys, just as kind of a launching point. Why do you think he does this to the count at this point? He already has the count on the ground. On the- yeah, honestly, I, you know, okay, I, I was already answering, but finish Fuck, it. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, obvious. It's obvious what I'm asking. Well, I, I was just going to say, you know, it shows again, like you see, Puck is, you know, talking to Gus. He was crying about Gus being almost dead, and then you know, Gus gets serious, like that hard look about the count, and then when the count is down, he's he actually tortures him, you know, like he, you know, the count is defenseless now. And Guts, you know, just, you know, starts torturing him in front of his daughter, which, you know, uh, Puck, you know, mentions, but he doesn't care. He actually tells, Gu- tells Puck to get the, you know, to move. Otherwise, you know, he'll kill him. Well, crazy shit. And the yeah. thing is, I think it shows how nuanced and torture his character is at that point, you know, like totally. he bosses, you know, his human side is trying to repress. And at the same time, he's so enraged and his hatred of Apostle is so big that it makes him inhuman, you know? Like, you know, there's many points in the series where they mention who Gus, like he's a monster, devouring monster. He's almost a monster himself, that kind of stuff. And that shows it. It shows, like, his lowest point where he's, you know, so, you know, enraged that, you know, yeah, he'll torture you on a person and, and just laugh and take pleasure doing it. He hits him so hard, he actually breaks his knife and falls down because he's just hitting him so hard. And it's not even just the violence he's inflicting on the count. It's the fact that he de- beheaded him and, and dropped his head right in front of his daughter, and he's talking about, yeah, this is your, he's t- talking about being human. This is, we're seeing like the toll that this fight against apostles has done on him, not just physically, but mentally as well. Like he, he goes into hysterics after his knife breaks, you know, this is, yeah. to me, this is Gut's darkest moment. Yeah. In the whole, in the whole series, probably. At least so far. Well, yeah, and yeah. I... Nothing. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to, you know, agree with you saying, yeah, I think, you know, like the, this, you know, part of the series, and I often say that, you know, the part where he's just banging that apostle chick can be, you know, rationalized as being his lowest point in the series, you know, where he'll just do anything no matter what. Right. And, uh, and this is, you know, like, this is the same thing. Like, you see him as, you know, being on the edge of madness, you know, pretty much almost insane, you know, you know, over an apostle. Um, I wanted to underscore this next point here because I think it's something that often gets misconstrued by newer readers is that, uh, there is, there is blood contact with the Behirid, but it's actually, you know, and this, this is said by the God Hand, it's his, it's the Count's strong desire to live that actually calls to them and it's what begins the transformation of the Behirid. He says, I want, I don't want to die. Yeah. And then the, and then the Behirid activates, you know, even me, like when I was first reading the series, I, I honestly thought it was blood contact that did it because we see that happen multiple times, but it's not. It's, it's this like what they call the wailing of your soul is what calls to the the god hand through the behirit. Yeah, it's an important distinction because uh, when the count's transformed, we see it later on there was no blood contact with it. I don't think I think it's just resting on a table nearby or something like that. Yeah, indeed. Anyway, yeah, it's I just mean, a small point, but it's symbolically. I mean, it's sort of it does this. It gives you the same message in a symbolic of course. matter. Yeah, the importance of it, and obviously we get it later with Griffith. Yeah, I'm just I saying think like that definitely. I've seen, I've Go seen ahead. a lot of I've seen I've seen a lot of people write like, oh well, the Behirit can't transform once it touches blood. Like, well, no, that's not. Really yeah, it's how like it a works. simplification of you know right. the idea, but I mean, it's like it doesn't hurt. You know, if you sure. Bleed on it, you know? Yeah, I mean, if, if, it shows if you're already 
If you're already bleeding on it, shit, shit's gone bad. Yeah, if you're bleeding to death, you know, you're probably, you know, oh, I've got a bloody nose. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't want this to happen. Right. And again, I didn't want to spend too much time on it. I just wanted to reiterate that small point. But uh, I wanted to talk about the world that we're shown, the dimension that we're shown here. Uh, well, obviously, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think the sequence itself is, is you know, it's amazing. Like that sequence, the mm-hmm. Beherit, you know, transforming, the Count's desperate look and his desperation in general, and you see the Beherit crying, and then boom, you know, the the eyes open, you know, like wide open, and you see that Isherian, you know, world. You know, I think right. it's, uh, I think it's quite amazing, and um, I just think, you know, like at this point in the series, you see Guts has been fighting a fucking, you know, hideous monster, and uh, it's. It's difficult to make the reader uneasy or to convey, you know, that, you know, now the shit is really hitting the fan, you know. Yeah. It's difficult to convey. And I think it's, uh, the, the way Mira does it is very, you know, like very effective, you know, like by, by using. S- yeah. I was just say you can see that Guts is, you know, unsure of things. You know, he's scared by this because, I mean, it's like it's something that he's wanted. But, you know, at the same time, he doesn't know what's going to come. Yeah. You know, right. There's a great panel on the bottom right of that page, or bottom left of that page, where the look on his face is both anticipation and also just like frightened as hell yeah. because he's suddenly out of his league completely in a completely other dimension. And I'm, I'm sure in his head he's thinking about when the eclipse started. Probably has similar sensations as yeah. far as being out of his league. But yeah. I, think, I think I think you're onto something, Azil, and I wrote something similar about the uh, the world design here, the way it's conveyed to us, the Escher design. It's implying a dimension that's kind of beyond, you know, human understanding, human comprehension. And it's in an otherworldly place that's, you know, not associated with where humans normally are. So obviously, you know, to be, to be honest, I think like, I'm not sure there could be a more effective way to get to that effect where he's like, like it boggles the mind, you know, he's like, wow, just, you know, like that fear and the way, you know, like he knows he's not in Kansas anymore, you know. It's just, you know, very, very effective. And there's also I, a panel that I find. I can think, I can think of one. Where if, if, what, what if there were a bunch of faces on the sky and the ground? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, good point. But the uh, the Escher staircase is interesting because it does immediately convey in a simple, practical way that this is sort of an impossible world. Yeah. yeah. This is one that it just cannot exist practically. Yeah. And, and there's a panel also I find, you know, very interesting, which is, like, you know, on the page just after the world has been revealed, like, you know, two pages later, you see, like, there's Guts, you know, who's standing, you know, like, horizontally, and there's a panel where Therese and Puck are on the side, you know. And uh I think it just, you know, the way the panels are arranged, you know, make make it, again, very disconcerting for the reader. Like, you, you get the impression that, you know, things are, it's another dimension where, you know, like, up can be down and left can be right. Mm. It's... I, I know we've reached an interesting point in the series when all three of us talk over each other, trying to get to the microphone to say something. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I don't feel like I need to go over the God Hand's designs. I mean, I don't really. I feel like we should devote a whole podcast to them, honestly. But you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I can say here that I haven't said in previous podcasts. But obviously, it's it, the, each of them are unique, but they share some similarities in their in their design, like aesthetic choices. But all of it is disturbing and has a. Sh- a kind of a gross sheen to it in this lighting, you know, that always kind of comes off as kind of weird and disturbing. Yeah, a bit like a bug, you know, a bit yeah. like a sect, you know. Just a, a creature of the night, so to speak, you know, something that's yeah. dark and under under some, you know, dirt somewhere. Should we talk about the tornado? Sure, you can. Aspect do- like the, yeah, I yeah. Mean, like the, 
the way it's yeah. represented is sort of this twister, you know, uh, a vortex like, almost. Yeah, but yeah. It, it looks like something that I mean, it doesn't look natural, obviously, but it's something that's sort of represented in terms of something that exists in the real yeah. world. Yeah, completely unnatural. And uh, you know, I like those shots. You know, it's just something Mira likes to do very often, like people like looking, being in awe, you know, of the town. I think again, it's it's quite effective in showing like things, you know, are serious now, very serious, you know. Right. We are entering something where it's not just, you know, the count is a monster. It's just, you know, like full on, you know, supernatural, you know, cataclysmic events. So what we have when the scene first starts is, is Guts and Fento's, you know, first reunion since the eclipse. And it's not even just that. It's actually their first, as I recall, words that they've exchanged. Is it not? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. And, uh, Guts, and Fento is a, just a dick. Yeah. yeah, it comes down to. And it actually is interesting. I, I mean, I can't tell. I'm probably reading into a little much. Is whenever Femto talks to him, Guts gets this like su- surprised look. Like, like he didn't know what to expect. Maybe this Femto is a completely different, you know, being, and there's no Griffith under there. But his kind of familiarity with Guts, it, it kind of takes him by, uh, by surprise. At least that's what I read into it. By Guts' look on his face. No, I'm actually not sure. It's you know familiarity. I think it's just a way. I just, it's just what he tells him. Like, you know. His voice as well. It could be the voice that he hears. Maybe. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think Gus, like, you know, expected him to be, you know, like almost, I don't know, maybe apologetic, you know, but not that, you know, not mm. like, you know, oh, you're being sacrificed again. You know, he's like, what? What? <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, one thing I like is that, you know, we also didn't mention it, but when, before they appear, Gus is, you know, like he's stricken down on the ground by the pain, you know. Like, it also serves to, you know, underline that, you know, these are very strong beings that just by their presence can put him on the ground, you know. Like, he gets lying on the ground just because they show up. And um, Right. Yeah, we didn't – I'm sorry. Yeah, I missed that panel, but it happens early. When they first appear, he has the giant blood spurt from his brand yeah. and he keels over. I missed that, yeah. I, I think it's just something that underlines the fact, like, these are serious guys, you know. Even though they actually reiterate later on when he tries to attack Femto, but – yeah, and yeah, in any case, yeah, I, I think uh, the, the way, the fact that Femto just, you know, how to say, I don't know, addresses him so casually, you know, and yeah. almost making fun of him and then, you know, talking to the Count, you know, yeah. not, not even giving a shit. I think that's what enrages God. It's very sure. dismissive just overall, you know, it's that whole, you know, I'm so above you attitude yeah. that, that Guts didn't like anyway, <laughs> you know, just yeah. in people, let right. alone in, you know, monsters that have, you know, taken so much from him. So the uh, the God Hand explained why they're here, and then the uh, the Count worthlessly said, "Oh, you can take the Black Swords and use my sacrifice." And of course, that doesn't work out. And uh, Fimto says that he's uh, beneath our our notice, which which it, it, at the time seems kind of like a just kind of like a, a petty response. But I think he's totally serious. He's he's completely serious when he says that. He's not saying that to piss guts off, although that is the effect of it, of course. But yeah. He really is beneath their notice in, in terms of their their role in the world and his role in the world. So uh, they, they seem quite, you know, they seem almost curious, like you know, seeing a retarded, you know, baby cat trying to yeah. get up on its legs and falling down. You know, that's pretty much the attitude they have over, you know, about him. You know, they just watch him. You know, like, oh, he's getting up. Oh, yeah. look at him. He's trying to strike. You know, it's actually kind of exciting to some of them. You know, about what's happening, and Slam yeah. gets a little excited about it. Actually, uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but um. <laughs> Guts really would, under certain circumstances, really make a pretty great apostle. I don't just mean his fighting ability. I mean the circumstances that life has given him. 
he really would kind of fit perfectly in the trappings well, you know, of an apostle. Yeah, so you know? He's a broken person, yeah, himself. Yeah. He already I mean there's already the I mean later on they get into it where, you know, he's not much different, you know, than an apostle. You know, Puck sees it and you know, he yeah. sort of sees it himself, you know, the spirits are telling him the same thing. Right. You know, I don't think it's uh, hard to say. I don't think it's very hard to see that uh, Zod is pretty much like, you know, an apostle version of Guts, you know, like yeah. you know, a, a broad warrior that has some principles despite being a monster, but he's still a monster. And just, you know, I, I think, you know, you know, that's, you know, sort of what Guts would be like with differences maybe. But, you know, I think we can relate it to that or at least we, we can, you know, get Zod as a as an example of what it would be like. Hmm. But, uh, in any case, you know, maybe going back to the volume. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, I'm surprised you, you're not talking about Void, actually. Uh, you should well, that, that's, some... that is my next <laughs> Are you that waiting next or are you l- just like, yeah, I was spoiled next... and ready to spring? Yeah, he's It is my very next line. I'm waiting, I was waiting to use it. I was, I was <laughs> waiting to, I was kind of clearing the path, waiting for you guys to say some shit first. Yeah, because I was like, you know, man, he's showing some real restraint right here. He's not yeah. talking about the Gonan at all, alright? I'm, all right. I'm on my, I'm on my best behavior. <laughs> So That's sure, right. I'll do it. Um, whenever no, I was wait, rereading. Wait a second. Let, let ah. me, let me set it up for you. I'm just going okay. to say that, you know, going back a bit on the design on the, of the God Hand, you know, I, I think they're all, you know, they all have their very unique design. And, uh, I think Mira shows it off, you know, in the panels, you know, in the way they are shown like Void is, you know, upside down and we see them from very specific angles. I think in a very short time, you can get a good idea of what their personality is. Not just that, but their roles as well. Uh, Boyd is the one to kind of, you know, oversee what's happening. He's the first one to speak about the scenario and he's the first one that explains why they're here, what they plan to do. Not just that though, uh, the biggest note I have here about Void is the paneling. The, he's usually shown as a part from the rest of the, of the God Hand. And I didn't really notice that until now. I've always, I've always thought of him as somewhat different from the others in, in terms of his role, uh, apart from them. There are these there are these lone reaction shots of Void, and I, I've referenced them a lot, and, and I, I've always sort of made fun of myself for it because you can't draw anything from them. It's just this empty panel of Void, but they he uses them quite a bit. You know, the most you know uh, evocative one is in Volume Thirteen, when after the Skull Knight leaves, they ask him, you know, we couldn't have foreseen this, right? You know, and then Void just kind of looks silently on. And this one it happens a couple times. Uh, it's Void's silent response to the Count. Saying, you know, you take that man's life, the black swordsman, and of course, and we can't do that. But the most interesting one is, uh, let me find it on the page real quick. It's when they say Guts is finished after, you know, Femto, uh, you know, he's about to strike Femto with the, the, the dragon slayer and then he yeah. paints. There's a shot of Void after the other three, you know, moron god hands say he's finished. There's this look of Void. <laughs> he, he knows that is not the case. And it actually made me, and, Forgive me if I'm fanficking a little bit. I wonder if he just recognized this kind of tenacity before. This kind of <laughs> fine laugh. <laughs> I'm laughing because yeah, you're totally a fanboy here, but uh <laughs> yeah. no, I, I'm, well, I'm willing to accept that. No, but I think you know, just you know, uh bouncing off what you said, I I think it's true. Like Mira shows these, these shots of void often, like you know, mm-hmm. and 
I, I think he, he knows what he's doing. Like, because there's a fact also, like, Void is pretty much a skull. Like, you know, he's got, you know, he can't move his mouth. His eyes are soon shut. So you can see his face from any angle, but it's just a face that never changes expressions. But mm-hmm. Mura, you know, he draws and shows his, you know, these, you know, also expressionless reaction shots in such a way that you, yeah, you know that, you know, when they're saying like that and void, like, it's not even, there's even no bubble. Like, it's not even, you know, like sometimes you see a bubble with, you know, dots in it, like, you know, yeah. nothing. Not Ellipsis. But, but, but there it's just, it's not even that, you know, he's just, there's nothing. And, uh, yeah, you know, he's just, you know, he's on to more than the others, you know, he knows right. things, you know, he's not saying. So that's pretty much like that's part of the cause for his character. And yeah, this early on, like in volume three, yeah, you already know that void is that, you know, like if you pay attention, you can already get that sense about his character. Right. So I, I always, I used to always imagine it. I mean, he is truly the uh, above it all of the above it all. He doesn't even make, you know, petty comments or anything like that. And you can imagine him if you want, just sort of being just bemused by everything. You know, he's just sitting there, you know, and, you know, they just have those reaction shots of his face where it's like, you know, no comment. <laughs> like, I think he's actually unmoved, whereas the other possible yeah. feel. Uh, you know, much more, they're much more engaged by this, you know, as, as, as Void the later calls it, the sideshow, you know. Yeah. Yeah. E- even Femto, who's actually like, who's been trying as Griffiths his whole life to be cold and, you know, emotionless. Mm-hmm. And who has Femto is actually pretty cold and emotionless, but even he shows more reactions than, than Void, you know. Yeah. Who actually even, you know, like, you know, when they start, you know, they are continuously talking and blah, blah, blah. He's probably dead. And he's like that, you know, like, you know, stop playing around. Like, enough of this. Let's get back to the ceremony at hand, you know. He, right. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, guys. Act like you've been here before, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's pretty much telling them to stop drinking around and, you know, acting <laughs> like morons. Sure. So a- after this all happens, um, you know, they kind of explain, you know, what they're here to do. And it, it is kind of out of the ordinary, and I think it's worth noticing that mentioning that it is out of the ordinary that they'd even be performing a second ceremony, you know, based on how things go. But they're yeah. they're here for a very specific reason, and I think it's to finish the job that they started with the count because the idea was that he would, you know, shed what was most important to him. He actually kept something behind, something else that was kept keeping uh, him holding on to humanity. So they're really they're here, kind of like it's like a. Apostle rehabilitation program to, you know, to finish the job. Like, I know you've been thinking about your daughter, man. You know, you got to let it go. That's keeping him, uh, an incomplete apostle. At least that's how I've read it. One thing, uh, yeah, of course, there's, there's that aspect. One thing we, we are not really touching on is the fact, you know, through this whole dialogue and, you know, even the, the way Guts is being beaten down and stuff like that, there's a lot of things about the stories that are being, you know, told, you know, in a casual manner. So I think, you know, this sure. thing actually has a lot of exposition, you know, without, you know, giving it up, you know, you know, how to say, very obviously, you know, it's just, you know, small things here and there, but you get a better picture of the God Hands, the Apostles, even God's life and his relationship with Femto, who he, he keeps calling Griffiths, you know, all this stuff like that. That's was just one part that's always, you know, I always found very interesting. That when, you know, Femto first shows up, just Gus keeps referring to him as Griffiths, you know. It gets, it whets the reader's appetite, like, who's this guy and why, why does he call him like that? Why is that not his name? You know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Puck, Puck actually voices that as well for the reader, you know. And it, yeah. Puck often serves as the reader's lens, so he's saying, you know, who's Griffith? So, of course, it makes you wonder and... You and, know, Mira uh, de- delivers that on a platter in a couple pages, but we'll get to yeah, that, obviously. Yeah, indeed. 
And um, and yeah, yeah. Anyway, just you know, lot of lots of uh, information about you know the processes of seeing stuff we still use nowadays. Like I mean, when you know Conrad is saying like you know a fissure will open into your heart, into which evil will pour, you know stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, we still use it nowadays. So like you like you said at the beginning of the podcast, like this thing is you know. Even though it's in volume three, it's, it's still, you know, stands still pertinent. It's still very important to the series, you know, many years later. Yeah. What Slan says here about the sacrifice, it must be someone important to you. Someone, uh, almost as if you're giving up a part of yourself, you know, that, that gives so much context to our understanding of apostles and you know, beyond what we've already seen that the count is at his heart, an imperfect or broken human. This, every apostle is now someone who has given up something that was, you know, part of themselves to, to become that monster. And again, yeah. it colors it colors our understanding of what apostles are and, and what they've been through to, to become what they are. It makes every apostle we've been introduced to like far more interesting to me once you put that in that in that context. And again, the, the fissure that will open in your heart. That's one of my favorite lines in the series. I don't know what it is. It's something something just like casually super evil about the way he says it. It just makes me laugh every yeah. time I read it. A fi- well, the, yeah, a fissure opening in your heart and evil pouring in, you know. Just, the, just very visual and delicious. I don't know, something about it. Well, it's and, well uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, all this stuff, too, uh, all this stuff, the development of, you know, the nature of uh, apostles and the God hand and, you know, particularly what we were discussing before with the count, you know, having some humanity left. This is important to Griffith sympathizers. This is all, you know, this all goes towards a, an argument, a certain line of argument that there is, you know, maybe not room for any redemption, but that, you know, as you know, it hasn't been shown yet, but some sort of, you know, interesting conflict mm. besides, you know, the demon child. And yeah. it's probably not something to get into here too in depth, but it's just interesting to note that this is sort of the first, you know, showing of the, you know, the, the evil characters, you know, the villains of the series, the antagonists, you know, having a little more depth to them, you know, being a little more complicated. You know, the snake baron was evil and he didn't want to die. And that was his motivation. Whereas the count, you know, in the end, obviously we'll get there to his decision. You know, it's a little more complicated. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. It, it adds, you know, uh, several layers to characters. Even the like, even the the low, random bad guy is not, you know, that random, you know, of a bad guy yeah. after all, you know. Yeah, it humanizes them. I think there is a discussion worth having about you know, the the apostle ceremony versus the god hand ceremony, what the what the count gave and what Griffith gave. But I just think it's a it's a it's fundamentally different for a variety of reasons. And it, obviously, the scale at one an entire army sacrifice versus you know your your wife or whatever, but I just tell think that, that to the, your wife, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That, I guess that, that is a stupid detail to, to focus on, but I'm saying in addition to that, so much hinges on Griffiths, whereas the apostle is just, you know, sort of a, uh, uh, bystander in, in the overall picture. I think there's less pressures, uh, uh, that are happening in that scenario. I, I don't know. I'm not, I think that's, I think well, that is technically true, but at the same time, I think for the story, it also adds this different kind of pressure for there to be, that conflict it almost becomes even more important that it exists hmm. yeah you know what i'm saying and uh you know there's, there's a thing and in any case you know the fact and that's not really you know like they don't really touch uh, on it in, in this except you know through void but you know things are bigger than these guys you know it's not like just for Griffiths, especially, it's the case, you know, yeah. but you know it's not like he just makes that choice for no reason like his entire life 
you know, was just manipulated to get to that point, you know. Yeah. So yeah. the thing is, you know, and we see it in this volume as well with, you know, like when Theresia is just wondering, you know, what happened last time, you know, because as I mentioned it, you know, Ubik very like evilly or I don't know, mischievously say, oh, well, I'll show you if you don't know, you know, and he uses his power <laughs> to show, her, you know, what happened in the past, you know, and, and that's how we get a flashback of, of what happened with the count. So it's actually cleverly done, you know, as usual with Mira, but it's also, know, uh, yeah, it's cleverly done in how they show up, but also because by showing that, it's a way to try to alienate, you know, and estrange the Count from yeah. Teresa. You know, like yeah. he would, almost like he would sacrifice her just because he can't bear her to know that, you know. Yeah. To just sort much. of get rid of the shame and run away again, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, so, it's, so, it's uh, a quick detail because it adds to what you just said is, is the way Ubik does, Ubik does this is fascinating. You know, opens time and space. Oh, let's just have a peek at what happened in the past. <laughs> it yeah. opens the door for so many awesome possibilities that gets me really excited about how that might be used in the future. What, what else is that going to be? That kind of method going to be used for to provide, you know, uh, an origin story on in, the, in, the, in other parts of the series, you know. So you know, I think it goes. You know, it goes together with also the power film to you know shows where he just projects goes back. You know, just by right. like you don't even see him blinking. You just see like there's a shot on his you know pupil where it's yeah. like you know he's contracting or whatever. Just you know his eye is enough to you know just you know get him back and explode him on a pillar, you know, and just the same way where Ubik is very casually say, oh, well, we'll see, and he snaps his fingers and up, you know, it happens like that. So I think, yeah, it shows that these guys have powers that are, you know, beyond, you know, anything else. I realize <laughs> though that we're making them, we're making him sound like a game show host or something. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, well, you know, the way he does it is very, I don't know, you know, he's biting his lip in anticipation, you know, that kind of stuff. He is, yeah, he is being a showman, you know. Yeah, he's very, you know. <laughs> He, he's very actually he's very Japanese, you know. I I never really thought about that before, but <laughs> he's yeah. very, you know, he has that little fat, you know, face and that thing. I, I think it's uh, it's very, you know, Japanesey to me. Mm. But in any case, yeah, like you were saying, Griffiths, it's a uh, it's it's a way for him, you know, to try to push the count into you know sacrificing, you know, and uh, sure. yeah, it shows how these guys, you know, work. And uh, it's an edited when, clip, <laughs> you know, they yeah. did all the. It's like a Michael Moore <laughs> yeah. documentary. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting because, you know, uh, like you see how the Count was before when he was human, like, you know, he wasn't evil, he was more of a just guy, and he was betrayed by by his wife and everything, and, um, fuck, I forgot what I wanted to say. Well, that's that's fine, I can interject real quick. Yeah. It won't, it won't break up what you were going to say, it adds to the, the part of the flashback. Um, did we see the God Hand here in kind of an interesting light? You know, I never actually caught this before. It's one of the new things I caught on this reread is, uh, you know, we always think of the God Hand dimension as, you know, this Esher, Esherian, uh, world and, and the eclipse is regarded as in the apostle or the God Hand ceremony. We always presume, or maybe that was a unique, you know, stage for Griffith's, uh, sacrifice, uh, but when the, the count sees them here, he sees them in the eclipse. He sees the four, Surrounding them, and it looks what looks like the eclipse. At least, the, at least the sun is eclipsed. You know, during this this little little vision he has there, and that surprised me because again, I'd always reserve the eclipse for Griffith's scenario or a God Hand scenario. But there they are, sort of gathered around the blackened sun. So. Well, That's surprising to notice. That, that being said, I think it's, uh, not, yeah, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. It's, uh, it's interesting. That's the first time we get to see the eclipse, which, yeah. uh, 
I think is interesting. And what's, you know, doubly interesting is that Femto is not there. So, you right. know, at that point, Mir has already planned the fact that Femto came on later on and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I think that's pretty deep, you know, like he's showing the four of them. You know, someone pay attention again, you know, like in volume three, you can already know, like these things are different. And, right. uh, but yeah, in any case, like this is a more of a representative shot. I'm not sure it's supposed to be exact, but uh, in any case, your, your point is correct, you know. Yeah, it, it probably is more of an iconic thing, but the fact is, that wasn't an icon in the series yet. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, it is strange that he chooses that, but probably not worth dissecting. It's just interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, and it's yeah. Pointed. Another small point I wanted to add about this scene is that it does in- introduce the heretics, which we come back to in full force later yeah. on in the series. You know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, why Baphomet? Why why Goatman Baphomet? I wonder. But I, I guess Mir just chose a pagan symbol to well, kind of rally. Yeah, the thing is, Baphomet was a very you know. It's a very popular symbol and it, it's an actual, you know, pagan symbol back in the day. So, you know, Mura, much, it's the same for everything Gento Maka Brother. He likes to, you know, base his stuff, ground it in historical facts. And, uh, Baphomet was actually, uh, a pagan divinity, which is a divinity that, you know, existed before, you know, uh, Christianity, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was actually associated with the devil because, like, Christians didn't like it and were trying to just replace, you know, previous, uh, beliefs, you know, and so it was a, a divinity of fertility. So it's also why they're all having sex, you know, because it was supposed to be, you know, for fertility, not just about, you know, you know, like human, you know, fertility, but also the fields and that kind of stuff. And, uh, and that icon of the, of the goat is actually not, you know, I, I don't think it's historically accurate, but, it's very powerful and it's uh, associated with, you know, satanism and that kind of stuff uh, in modern times. So I think it was uh, just a powerful icon that he just chose to use. This is somewhat tangential, but um, we always presume that the Holy See is kind of a religious arm of the God Hand. Do, do you think this cult is also an arm of the God Hand? Well, it's obviously associated with Slan, you know. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. we are not we are not told that this early on, but uh, yeah, I think we are shown later in the series that it's pretty much just how to say, manipulated by Slan, like that, that's her, you know, domain, you know, yeah. sex and lust and that kind of stuff. And yeah, she's manipulating it. And I think the OAC, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit complicated. I don't think they're just, you know, like uh, a really, you know, just what to say. Uh, it's not like they're a specific agency of it, but they're, they're riding yeah. that wave. They're pushing that wave, you know, but, whatever. You know, I think everybody is, you know, like them and everything else, even the cushions, you know, were, you know what I mean? They're, mm-hmm. they're all, you know, manipulated equally. So it's just, you know, doubly, you know, how to say, you know, ironic that these guys who try to, you know, uphold, you know, certain values and such are being such, you know, like, you know, tools, you know. Right, they're all being you know used in a certain way for sure. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I remember what I wanted to say. Okay, go for it. It's, uh, it's interesting, you know, like you see, his account. He doesn't have the guts to sacrifice, you know, his wife. Mm-hmm. He's actually definitely, you know, waiting, you know, inviting him to kill her, and uh, and so you know, the gold hands they play on that. He also doesn't have the the strength to kill himself, but you know, the gold hand, you know, they propose him, you know, they offer him. Uh, relief from the pain, you know, you know, mm-hmm. that's what they give him, you know, something, you know, where he won't feel pain, he won't, you know, have such a thing. And so they make him a snail, you know, and make him, you know, his body can't be cut, it regrows and such. But, you know, it, it makes me think at the time when I read the, that volume for the first time, that's what I instantly thought of is, you know, these guys will grant your wish, but not in the way in which you wanted it to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
Sure. And I think, and I think it, it's the same for, you know, Roshin or even the, you know, the Beherit Apostle, you know, where he wanted a better world. And, you know, they, they made it so, but, you know, they always twist, you know, what people want. You know, they, they give them, you know, something, but it's always in their own twisted way. And, I'm, just, uh, I'm just thinking of the, the morning after conversation <laughs> that the count has to have with himself, looking in the mirror going, ah, oh, man, oh, man, you know, maybe <laughs> yeah. this is a wrong decision, you know. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, at that point well, he's a monster, I'm, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you just sorry, really quick. It is, I think it is very important, and it's something that I don't think I realized until you know fairly recently, a couple of years ago, when when this actually came up. When the image happens of the count, you know, in, in front of his wife being devoured, looking at that casually, it just looks like you know he became a monster and, and ate his wife. But that's not what's happening. The way it's framed looks like that, but. <laughs> It's the vortex that comes up and devours her. And yeah. they actually, they you actually know, say, I, hold on a minute. They actually talk about how you weren't able to take your, you know, to kill your wife yourself. And so she, then she belonged to us. Or, or I can't remember the exact wording, but, uh, you well, gave her body to us. Well, you know, I, I actually had, uh, I, I've been thinking about that. Like ever since I first saw that panel, I've been wondering because these faces, you know, that are eating us, these kind of tentacles, they also don't look like the vortex. They don't really look like the vortex, you know. So, well, this is volume one. There's volume three of the entire series, and the vortex develops. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think it. I mean, I mean we see I mean, some of the vortex a couple pages later, and I, yeah. I can totally see the similarities. It's also well, representative, you know, in the in that image. You know, it doesn't necessarily. I mean, it's just representing the god hand. You know, forces. You know, have sure. her in essence that they belong to her, whether yeah. it's you know specifically the, the, the creatures from the vortex or well, the what question, have you. I mean, what, what, whatever monster or whatever it is, the, the point is, I don't think it's the count doing it. I, I think it's some other force. That, he looks. Here. If I recall, I don't have it sitting right in front of me, but he looks horrified. Actually, yeah, totally. Is what I remember. He just looks like you know. He just looks like he's almost like you know. It's like no instant regret. Like no, you know. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you know, um, I don't know. You see, like you know the you know these tentacles, you know, eating her body uh, in front of him, and he's in the background, and there are some other tentacles coming on from behind him. So we don't know if they are from him or from behind or anything like that. But it's a, uh, I don't think he really shows regret. He shows him as a monster. And these, you know, also look like a bit, you know, the stuff that sprouts from, uh, Zondark, you know, when Gus, you know, kills him in the stairs. But, uh, I say so because I've really, you know, like, I, I've really thought about this for a long time and I, and I couldn't really decide, you know, whether it was a vortex or not. But yeah, you know I agree. What? It, it I actually agree. doesn't. It doesn't look like either the count or the or the vortex is the problem. Yeah. It doesn't distinctly yeah. look like one or the other. But I can yeah. see. I mean, I don't know. I can see. All, I can usually always see both sides of the argument. But I don't know. I, I, I think the whole point of him sacrificing so to become a monster so that he wouldn't so because he couldn't go through with it. I don't know. It doesn't seem to. But me I like mean, it. when they say he couldn't kill her, I think that was just as like with his sword, he couldn't you know kill her as a man as a human. Yeah. He didn't have the strength. But I mean, I think as the count, you know, when they made him a monster, I mean. He could have participated yeah. then in her death at that point. Yeah, yeah. But it yeah, was just, you know, he, I think well, that's what all, they meant by you couldn't kill her yourself, you know. It meant well, like then, you why, couldn't why, kill her without us, you know, changing the situation. Well, let me ask this then. Why would he want to kill her at that point? For, as, as, oh, as, wait, to, to continue his vengeance? Well, he's hungry, you know. Uh-huh. And well, he's hungry. Would... <laughs> More importantly, it's like... Well, you know, he's a monster and now he, you know, doesn't have anything left and he can, you know, he, he can, you know, hold the set, take care of it. I mean, I, I think both sides are, you know, are possible. I, 
just you know i think i think the two sides you know sure i'm I'm glad i'm actually kind of excited that we couldn't come to a consensus on that i mean that's neat i think it's cool to have that kind of discussion it is weird that it hasn't been clarified but it's a weird thing to clarify uh, you know that being said that being said uh we do get a flashback of ganishka's life in volume 34 right very which, similar in, in which he sacrifices his son and you know as you know he sacrifices him you see his son being taken up by the vortex and uh at that time it really looks like the vortex you know so uh yeah. there's a precedent you know or i guess you know an antecedent you know whatever it for, seems you know, to be following the precedent of this image. You yeah. know, it's a very similar shot where you see Ganeshka in the background. It looks like he, he looks tickled pink though. Like, you know, he's in his smoky floor, yeah. you know, it looks like he's <laughs> laughing. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And, uh, yeah, with a similar shot of the Beherit, you know, You crying. thought you were gonna get me, huh, son? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, so yeah, so, you know, after seeing that shot, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, it would tend to, you know, validate the fact it might be the vortex. But I think from that panel alone in volume three, honestly, it's hard to decide because, yeah, like you said, the, these tentacles don't look like anything, you know, they, yeah. they, they, they don't look like the vortex at all, but they also, like, they don't really look like what the count, you know, you know, his limbs, so it just, you know, doesn't make, it's hard to be sure. You almost said it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but that was a mistake. You know, that was a mistake. <laughs> I know. That was I'm a just, mistake just, on I, your I, part. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will repent uh, later on tonight, you know. Uh, ten ten lashings. Statue. You know, yeah. ten lashings or maybe 20. <laughs> I can see Puella overruling that. That'd be, that'd be funny to see. Uh, yeah, well, you know. Uh, you know, I actually wrote no notes on the next scene, which you guys are going to go, what? Uh, which is, you know, the sort of flash forward slash flashback of, uh, what's to happen with Guts and, yeah, with Griffith and Guts, uh, the the golden rule, golden, uh, scene where Griffith really, you know, what's interesting about this scene, I'll say, I I feel like I, I feel like I've talked about this scene a couple different times. Go ahead, Zeal. I was going to say, what about, you know, the, the brand, you know, threatening, you know, Theresia? Why are we not talking about that? I like that oh, shot. Yeah. It's because it's I turned three pages ahead after we were <laughs> mid yeah. vortex discussion. Sorry. No, because it's a uh, twenty uh, minutes on the vortex and yeah. <laughs> the tentacles in that shot. I just like that shot of uh, Void upside down. You know, with his hand extended. You know, threatening Theresia with uh, the brand. You know, I think it shows yeah. how you know, like terrifying it is by itself. You know. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that you know you can uh, go ahead with the. No, the no, plot. not just that though. The next couple pages are really cool too, and will grant you your burning desire uh, with the, the with God hand kind of framed around each other in that one shot, with Risa with the brand flaming. Yeah, and meanwhile, Gus telling Puck to help him, you know. Yeah. Like, because he can't. A, have, it's one of those really cool way to end to end an episode with. Uh, What's, what's gonna happen next with guts, you know? It's cool. Yeah. The next scene I wanted to point out that, uh, the way Griffith is shown as a human, you know, obviously starkly different from Femto, but you can see how this man may have warped into Femto given his desire, his grand ambition, his desire to know what his role in the world was. It gives a very dark, uh, interpretation of his intent here. He wants to know what his yeah. role in the world is. Well, we know what his role in the world is by the time we see the scene. So it, it really, yeah. Kind of, 
gets like a certain color to it. But I also wanted to point out that this is visually really interesting because Griffith is shown as, you know, there's light in his hair. There's, there's a, a shadow being cast by his head. It's also that there's a sunset in the background. So it's like the, 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 the dying light of this man, you know, we're seeing the end, the end of this guy's life before has, darkness you know, descends, you know? Yeah. To, to say, to, you know, a few words, he's very angelic, you know? Oh yeah, sure. Like, and the, the, the final page of that is the contrast between what he was and what he is, is, is fa- always yeah. fascinating, of course, you know? Yeah. And he says, you know, like, uh, you know, God is special to him. He's the first person he, you know, talks like this too, that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. And it is really interesting that makes you, it really makes you want to see more of those two characters together. And of course, it gives us the entire Golden Age arc, which is, you know, was, was great, of course. Well, again, the interesting that... thing to me uh, is about his speech itself. Sure. It's that it's sort of just, you mean, you couldn't give have a better ethos for like you know describing like the God Hand and you know for you know what he becomes for Femto, but he's doing it. He's sort of discussing it like in human terms. He's trying to you know manifest it you know in the human world you know by becoming a king or whatever, and he's talking about it in that way. But he almost he goes beyond it in the speech even where you know. It sounds like he's talking about something greater, like you know, godhood, or you know, something like that, or how it could be represented on Earth. So it's interesting, the idea that he was already born and bred, you know, to become femto. You actually said something on an episode before that really uh, was fascinating, and it was related to what you just said. You said that you know, the empire or the castle or or, uh, the sorry, Griffith's dream was always just sort of a, a physical manifestation of what his true desire was. It was what he could grasp as a human, you know, yeah. as what he reached for as a human. But he always had this this deeper, you know, motivating force behind him. And as Femto, he can truly realize it. You know, that's what's interesting about this character is the human Griffith only had a certain amount of reach. But as Femto, yeah. it's dramatically different in hand. It's true. Yeah. People tend to focus too much on the castle, you know, being king, right. that kind of stuff. But actually, when you read what he says in Volume Three, or he also mentions it later on in the in the series, but he says he wants to see how far he can go. Like you know, the right. castle is because it's an obvious symbol. But you know, people tend to stay focused on that too much. And even though he's, you know, he gets it with Falconia, you know, but you know, the point was never just that. You know, that's that's not what the point ever was. He wanted to go as high up as he could and he did right i um i I only have a few more notes about this particular section of it but um i did want to point out that what would actually happen had the count gone through with this what if he had said yes what do you think would have happened how what would the end result would have would have have been do you think as that's actually a pretty good question yeah i think i mean first of all like at least he would have been restored I mean, just oh, at, sure, at yeah. the very least. I mean, at the very least, he would have just. I mean, are you asking like, would he have become something even greater? Would, yes, been, uh, uh, would it be like? Well, yeah, would he be the no, same no, no. slug, but he's like a hundred feet tall? <laughs> well, let, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. The God Hand were called here to uh, from from him. If you know, if causality tells a story, causality is trying to push things in a certain direction. What would have been the big importance of this ceremony that was ultimately severed? What would have been the – I guess Guts would have been snuffed out. That would have been it for Guts, I'm guessing. Yeah. That yeah, would have been the, right. the, the significance of this gathering. You yeah. Know? Well, what's interesting is that, I mean, presumably the God Hand could have killed Guts at any time, you know, here. I yes. mean, I presume – I mean, they don't really do that. They, we, I, we really haven't seen them other than uh, – Void and Femto. I mean, we've seen Femto, you know, kill things. You know, we've seen, he attacked Skull Knight. 
The same with Void. He defended himself, you know, against Skull Knight. But, you know, presumably Femto could have reached out and crushed Guts, you know, if he had wanted to. Right. But they don't do that. Yeah, they don't do yeah, they, they just, you know, it's like they says, they just don't care. He's beneath their notice, you know. But, uh, yeah, I actually think, you know, it's a good, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, they haven't threatened him with the vortex, you know, which is, we get to see after that. But yeah, yeah. The, the question to me is, you know, whether he would have just been restored to his, you know, to his normal self or he would have gotten more power. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's hard to answer. I think he would have been more powerful. I think you would have granted him, you know, more power, but you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to say. We we never get to see it, so we can't you yeah. know. It would seem like almost a like a cheat if he had only been restored. <laughs> like, yeah, it would be like he didn't get enough. Yeah, you know, for him. I mean, it is saving his life, though. Uh, I also think he would have, you know, like this tiny bit of humanity left in him, you know, would have been completely severed, and he would have probably been, you know, a monster like more more basic in his instincts. Like, he was already, you know, pretty horrible, you know, mm. eating people and whatnot, but I think it would have been, you know, like, even even more horrible. Like, probably, you know, mentally, more like, you know, stink bar and just eating, you know, human meat and killing people for fun and that kind of stuff. And, uh yeah. Right. It is interesting to think about what he might be, and unfortunately, we just never get that chance, and we never see... We don't have any knowledge of any apostles that require this kind of re- rehabilitation either, so it's purely it rhetorical. Well, that's what's interesting to think about is to think about have other apostles actually done this before? Like, you know, well, Wild, he knowingly attempted to do it, you know, and had he done it before, you know, had, no. you know, certain, had certain apostles screwed up and it's like, oh man, you know. Think about, think about why we're here. Think about this scenario. It's, a, I think it's a unique thing that happens because of Guts' involvement. Like Guts, yeah. Guts brings an apostle to its knees and there happens to be a behirate nearby because he collected it. I think it's a very unique yeah. circumstance and, for this and, to have happened, you know. Yeah, and that apostle still has something to sacrifice, you know, which is right. so very rare. Like he sacrifices his wife, but, you see, like his daughter. It's a, I think it's a very rare occasion as well, and uh, that's also why I think it could have been like you know something you know not you know him becoming like Ganishka because it's a completely different process. But I think it could have been you know an important event, an important event. I should have seen this coming, but we're coming close to running out of time, and I still have a lot to say. So I'm, I'm just going to move a little quickly. Um, the way the vortex appears makes me really think about the relationship between the God Hand and the Vortex of Souls. It's there. It's not as if it's there all along, but the way this dimension works, apparently the God Hand can just either summon it or kind of open a portal to it because suddenly Femto points and the vortex appears. We notice because not only visually it changes, but also Guts reacts with his brand. Puck gets like frozen and he's like, you know, overcome with the, the, the sensation of the vortex being this close to him. There's this awesome two page spread, probably the coolest shot in the entire. Uh, volume, I think, anyway. So yeah. It's uh, kind of the uh, the canvas painting of the vortex, and we see the whole the whole dimension split into two, basically, with that in front of it. And the vortex actually does look like an literally an ocean of souls, the way it works, and uh, and it, it really gives a sense of the scope and power of not just the God Hand, but this this world that they inhabit. It's a completely off the charts, you know, section of the the, the world that that we barely understand. Femto calls it hell, but I don't know. I, th- I think it's even more complicated than that. This happening, but well, yeah, he said, you know, like you can call it hell, but you right. know, yeah, he he himself at the time hints that it's not that simple. Yeah, you know? obviously. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty. You know, actually, yeah, like you said, it's an uh, it's an awesome vista, you know, and um, 
why it's something we can see again in episode, you know, 83, you know, for those who, mm-hmm. these, you know. So, in the very end, the Count is actually considering self-preservation, even getting all, given, given all that has happened and all these memories of Teresa, for a moment he actually is considering sacrificing her, and then she calls out to him, and what's fascinating to me is that it's not that he's just doing it for her. It's not that he just gives himself up for just Teresa. He actually remembers them as a family, you know, before everything went south for him and, and his family. He's not just remembering his daughter. He's remembering his wife and them as a family together. And that's what ultimately causes him to get rid of it or, or yeah. to, to do away with the whole deal completely. And yeah. he, he doesn't even say anything. That's the coolest, man. It's not like yeah. he says, "No, fuck this." You know, he just—it's just his—it's his—it's his, it's his will that drives the whole ceremony away, and that's what the yeah. gods can catch on to. That's fascinating. And he also runs out of time. You know, there also that you know that thing factoring into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're just—you know—the best part is like they, they, they don't give a shit. Like the gold hands, you know, Void just says, "Well." No, they look disappointed, man. Femto and uh, look, look, look at Ubik, man. He's like, oh, ball. Yeah, I agree. He's he's uh he's pretty quiet. He's too quiet for his usual self. But yeah. I just you know they're just like you know they're stoic. That's what I mean. They're, just, they don't you know. And again, it's, it's, again, it's not like it could have ruined the day. He is merely an apostle, and they've already accentuated what how guts killing apostles is just like a nothing. You know who cares. Another thing about this, the vortex then comes out to take the count. What's fascinating about it is, is it again establishes this relationship between the two. Is that the count's body kind of reaches out for the vortex as it comes? Yeah, it's, you know, it's not just like the vortex is going to land on it and then like absorb it like it's glue or something. It's actually they're connected in some way as a kind of a magnetism between the two things. Yeah, well, it's because it's not really yeah. his his body, like in that dimension, you know, it's his soul they come to to take and that's reflected in, you know, Femto's, you know, speech, uh, you know, beforehand, you know, about, you know, how things will work, you know, that his body will, will expire, but his soul will be taken up and live there forever. Not just that, but what I'm talking about is the actual composition of an apostle. You know that its power emanates from the God Hand through the vortex. That's, that's what I yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And so that's what's that's what's being reclaimed is that borrowed power of the vortex. What's interesting is the different ways we've seen this. Is just here we've got the vortex open. We see his body sort of yeah, like being drawn to it. You know, like a yeah. magnetism. You know, it's like it's returning. And where we see Wild, you know, in, you know, implode, you know, on himself. Because there's, yeah. it's not like there's two different sources. It's just all going, you know, it's going into himself into the same place where you can actually see the vortex open in there. Well, the diff- yeah. the difference in those two scenarios is that with Wild, it was actually the dimensions were suddenly opening and taking. Yeah. Whereas here is right in front. The whole thing's right in front of us. You know? Yeah, it's already yeah. opened up. Right. Right. Um, uh, I don't. Yeah, go ahead. Now I was going to say is there's also the fact you know we see that Vargas is there. You know. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Like it's a it's a it's a double thing because you know you know like he's there and he takes revenge but at the same time you know he was not he was not that bad of a guy but he still got fucked. Hey, looks you know? pretty evil in this shot. Yeah, well, yeah he, he he's so ugly he has to go to hell. I mean, you know, I'm uh, yeah. I just so, mean, I mean he he had a lot of evil. He had a vengeance in his heart. You know, I mean it's just to me it sort of represents the corrupting nature of the God Hand even on good people that don't turn to them. They will still, you know, in the end, they will corrupt you. They will make you, you know, evil in how they, in how they interact with you. You know, the same thing with guts. It's sort of, you know, dance with the devil, right? Yeah. And, you know how it'll change you. 
So Guts yeah. uh, fires at Femta with his cannon, but at that time, it looks like he wasn't even focused on preserving himself. He just wanted to get in the last yeah, shot. Yeah, it was his you know? last shot. And they managed to save him uh, regardless, so... Yeah, because the vortex, you know, that uh, you know, Vargas was there and they take up, you know, the count, but they also come for guts, you know, like yeah. that's that's the other thing. Like right. he's been just lying there doing nothing, but they also come for him, you know, because he's a sacrifice. Right, right. Um, I, I, I don't. I'm trying not to speed along because this is important stuff. I'm just trying to look at the clock as well. Well, we are we are near the end, you know. Like he he shoots his cannon, and you know, it's ineffective against Femto again, you know, like you know. It's just, you know, he's, he can't be touched by... It's something that reinforces the fact that Femto is pretty much invulnerable, you know, like, you know, like they all are. And uh, as Guts, you know, falls down, well, you know, he returns to the place he originally came from. And, you know, mm-hmm. the final shot of, you know, them looking at him, the yeah. shot of, you know, Femto's eye. Very powerful stuff. Really know? awesome. I love the way yeah. it's framed. And it ends with Femto's uh, eye, and then it, it kind of vans, yeah. and it blinks away. Very and cool. then, and then the next page is, uh, you know, city with a quiet, nice sky, no clouds, no storm, you know, like, you know, it's finished. One of my favorite shots in the whole series is just the Count's body being there. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the representation of what would have been left of him if those wounds had been inflicted on him as a person, you know, sure. sort of like all the, all the evidence is gone, you know, all the supernatural, you know, element is, you know, it's all been removed. We saw it get removed and this yeah. is all that's left. Not just that, the entire, Look how fucked is this old castle? Is. It's like it's to- yeah. yeah, it's open to the sky now as a result of everything. Yeah, uh, and Theresia what- is there crying. Of course, you know? right before that page, there's something interesting that happens with a framing. I wanted to point out uh, the page begins with a behirit falling, and then you see what looks like two dragon slayers, and it's actually uh, it's it's the action of the oh, dragon yeah. slayer yeah, bounce, bouncing after falling. We're actually seeing an action shot. It looks yeah. like a still frame, but it's a ba-bum kind of bounce on the on the. Yeah, the it's like a yeah. – or I imagine it kind of being like a quarter like when it hits the floor and, you know, sort of keeps hitting off its two sides until it finally comes to rest. Right. And we see – but we basically see both the Behir and the Dragon Slayer do that. So that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Clunking down. Right, right. Uh, so there's this interesting thing that happens with Teresa and, and Guts as well because – at this point, Guts is interacting with someone who was almost sacrificed, and, and, and he knows what that life would have led to. He also knows somewhat about what Teresa's going through in this, at this moment. She just saw yeah. someone she loved get taken by these demons, basically, and you know she reaches out for the first thing that she can't blame it on, uh, and it ends up being Guts. And he, he doesn't turn her away; he encourages it. He, he knows what she's gone through. He knows what she where she is at this point, you know. But um. What do you think about her resolve, her misguided resolve for, for what she's going to do? I, the way I see it, it, it's simply – it's guts weight that turns her from suicide. She gives her a reason to live yeah. for, for this moment yeah. and it is – it's revenge even if it is a misguided revenge. You he know. tries to – Well, also I think it's important. I know uh, we're low on time but just the, the fact that he does save her. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like, he does but, reach out know, for it. It's not completely yeah. detached. Yeah, he, he saves her. You know, she's – and also the fact that she was sort of, you know, threatening suicide, but, you know, yeah. she wanted to live too. And yeah. the, the blood on his hands actually moves him as well, that he, he caused this yeah. whole scenario to happen for a moment, you know, makes him, you know, really think about what, he, what had happened. Yeah, it's a point and, for 
it's a powerful way to end it, you know. He empowers her and, you know, tells her to do what she wants with her life and even encourages her to, yeah. like, to, to go after him. But at the same time, he's just, you know, like, he tends it with him crying, you know. I think that's very powerful and shows how nuanced his character is, you know. Like, even though, like, when you take the shot of him, you know, torturing the count and, you know, smashing his face with a knife and you put up with this, you know, it's just, you know, it shows how nuanced it all is. Right. Do you think we'll also see Teresa? For her, it's... <laughs> no. Okay. I was going to ask, do you think I we'll see Teresa again? I do not Teresa think we'll again? see her again. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. no. <laughs> probably not. And if we did, it would be... But no, I, I don't think so. Okay. I, don't think, I so. think it just served... I mean, one thing it served the purpose for was what we were saying before, just how, how it changes you. I mean, she was always like this sort of scared, crying girl, and at the end, she she's full of rage and hate and vengeance. Right. That's a good and point. So, yeah. Yeah, it's another person who's been sort of, you know, corrupted, you know. That's and I think Guts can see that too. That's neat. And as I expected, we do not actually have time to finish the volume because uh, we had a discussion before this podcast started. Were we going to actually approach the golden age at the end of the volume or not? I said I didn't think we'd have time and also don't have a lot to say about it. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't prepared much to say about it, rather. And yeah, we are out of time. Maybe we will continue doing this. I, I think we will. I think we'll okay. continue, continue along this. You know, based on everything we talked about before, I, I think there's a there's a chance to do it. Well, we'll yeah, go this and, was good. There was a lot here to talk oh, about. So the golden yeah. age would be fantastic. I, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I, off the top of my head, I, I have a lot to say about the way it starts, but not not a lot towards the middle sections, I guess. You know, but I don't know. Maybe I'm again being naive about how long it takes to do these. Guys, it has been fantastic. Thanks again for joining me on these rereads and uh, guys, thanks for listening as well. We will be back the next time there is an issue, probably sometime, uh, I guess later in the month. So we'll see how the fight continues in Gigantomachia. And I guess we'll be doing the end of volume three and some and four as well. So stay tuned for that guys. saw the hobbit 2 last night or the, the desolation of of smeg as i like to call him <laughs> what'd you think oh well i guess we'll get we're not going to have a movie or video game section today i don't think maybe, maybe if we have time for it but i don't think we will what'd you think I overall the first though? one better yeah really yeah I, thought, yeah I did actually like uh i mean this one had a lot of amazing visuals I feel yeah. like they really pushed the limit to the point of what could look good even. Like there were points where it was like, wow, that's really overwrought. You know, some of the stuff with smog chasing them around mm-hmm. where it was like, it was like, wow, there's so much, like it almost looks so good that it looks bad. I don't know if that, if that makes sense. Like it almost crossed over. But um, the most impressive thing in the movie to me was probably just, again, that feeling that they could do anything they want at this point. Like, uh, the barrel scene where the barrel is rolling on land, you know, hitting the <laughs> the orcs, yeah. and then Legolas is running around kicking people, and it's like it actually looks like decent. I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow, this this actually passes. I can't believe they're able to do this and yeah. have it not look just totally alien and ridiculous. Like, yeah, so that was, was what struck me. It was uh, yeah, visually it's pretty it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, actually, I liked uh, the part where Gandalf is, you know, fighting against, you know. Yeah. Even though that's fucking, that's complete, you know, fan fiction. <laughs> just yeah. out of nowhere, but just, it felt well, like no. a 
it felt like a video game, you know, pretty much. So just, you know, I was like, yeah, well, you know, I'm okay with this shit, you know, his, like. His ball is going to get bigger. Yeah. <laughs> like it, was, yeah it really it's was. Like fireball, you know. He's yeah. tapping the X button to make his, you know, ball expand, <laughs> you know, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it felt like a Metal Gear Solid, you know, cutscene, you know. The thing with that is like. Isn't this Lord of the Rings at this point? Like, you know, Sauron's armies are marching, you know, it's like, wait a minute, this is going to happen like 60 years later. I mean, what's, what's going on? I mean, yeah, I guess yeah, it's just the third movie. It makes no <laughs> sense. What is this thing? You know, he's, he's Jackson. Oh, and what about Tariel? I don't even remember who that is. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, Kate from Lost. Oh yeah, oh Kate, yeah, Katie, yeah, oh, my God, oh, <laughs> well, that was Katie. that was that was cringe worthy, but you know I expected it. I'd read uh, that yeah. it was you know, and of course you know I mean, it's like in uh, Lords of the Rings, there was also some kind of you know tacton romance, and it was yeah, it was ridiculous. Yeah, actually that was pretty you know painful, but uh, like a, you know, this time it's going to be some elf dwarf. Uh, yeah, stuff on yeah, it's, it's, it's gross, you know, and you you can. <laughs> You could hear the audience, you know, uh, like, you know, wincing as the thing was going on. People were like, oh, Jesus Christ. So, yeah. Oh, there were cheers here. I mean, you know, <laughs> oh, why, why was, why is Lycalus in the movie? Because the, the Mirkwood elves are in the movie and he is of them. So, oh, let's bring Legolas back. Oh. They may, I mean, in the book, they do mention the king of the Mirkwood elves. Sure. Who, yeah. Who's his father. But I mean, yeah, it's like, that's really a, that's a thin invitation for these liberties. It was yeah. for the, it was for the chicks, man. They wanted to bring the chicks into the audience. Well, I think it's it's fan service. I mean, it's yeah. fan service for them. It's like, oh man, we're gonna bring Orlando back on set. It's gonna be so much fun, you know. He's I mean, gonna shoot ten elephants this time. <laughs> they would have brought Boromir back if they'd been able to, you know. They they tried to bring back Aragorn. Whoa, they, really? Yeah. Well, because I mean, it's not like there's a. Uh, you know, he's, you know, so old, you know, he's supposed to be like, how old is he supposed to be? I don't remember, like 80. 80, 80 or 90, yeah. yeah. And so they wanted to have him put a watch on the Shire in one of the movies. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> to watch Frodo. And uh, to Viggo Mortensen's credit, he said no. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> he was like, really? <laughs> like, you know, uh. it's going to be 60 years later. I mean, it's like, I know I'm supposed to be, you know, that old and everything, but it's, just, you know, I guess he just said like, yeah, I don't need to go around on this again. I like, I like how they start adding these, you know, non canon characters to the mix, but they completely axe Tom Bombadil. Not that I want to see Tom Bombadil. I'm just saying. Because I it, wanted no. to see Tom Bombadil. He's the coolest part of the entire thing, you know, talking road. <laughs> <laughs> I think no, it would be weird on screen, that's all. This is where Jackson wrong. He should have pulled a George Lucas and while he was making these, just incorporate Tom Bombadil into the Hobbit. Just put those just find a way to transmute those scenes <laughs> into it to satisfy all those you know, fans. What what really what at the time really disappointed me is that he he did an extended version, you know, for the DVDs where there's tons of shit and the thing is long and there's many parts which that aren't the original, but he still didn't put in fucking Tom Bombadil, you know, because yeah. the, the, the truth of it is just he doesn't care and he doesn't like it. No, like he, it's yeah, like he's got he four hours of footage. It's like, oh, sorry, we didn't have time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
it's just it's pretty much just like the director of the you know Berserk trilogy saying, ah, yeah, is it, you know Black Swordsman, yeah, no, no, we don't have time for that. Like the, the audience wouldn't like it, you know, like fuck you, man, fuck you, go fuck yourself. The the Tolkien the Tolkien professor guy actually says he's glad they didn't do it because he knew they would do it wrong. It's similar. Yeah. It's similar to like how we approach the adaptations. Like, well, I'm glad they didn't do this this way because they would have just fucked it up completely. So I may as well stay away from it completely. Yeah, I guess. I guess. It, it is pretty you know, wacky, you know, the tumble part. But yeah, it doesn't jibe with some of yeah, the tone. The, I mean, that's, yeah, that's part of the point. Is that so, yeah, you know, we got to make it as wholly depressing as possible and serious. Although one thing that bugs me is they they hype up the action so much with the spiders and smog and everything that it, it makes you wonder because they're moving with all this visceral power. It's like how come nothing can kill anything? Like all these orcs, they're worse than stormtroopers. Like smog yeah. can't yeah. kill anybody. The spiders, they jump on you, they're on you, but they don't <laughs> bite anybody. <laughs> like they could at least make it so they bite the guy. And he goes ah. You know, and that's it. But it doesn't, you know, poison him or anything. So I was just watching, and it's like it's like watching a cartoon where you know, like, well, none of the, none of my favorite characters are going to, you know, die or anything. So I had I'm the same problem with the first movie, and I think it comes down to it's like action that works on the page, but not on the screen. Because on the screen, you can't really convey action without consequence, but they're doing it anyway. You know, yeah, like, it's also the thing is it's also a tale for kids where originally like, you know, Zeva did a lot of this shit. They made know? it all hardcore in the actual yeah. presentation, but it doesn't make sense, you know, where, you know, wow, that that guy can hit, you know, anything with an arrow from a mile away except for a human <laughs> ten feet away. Because yeah. he because it's part of you know, it's like again, stormtrooper blaster aim. Miss, so yeah, it was it was weird, especially the fire breathing dragon that you know always manages to step around the you know the dwarves, you know doesn't even inadvertently kill anybody. Yep. Well, that's all I have to say. <laughs> that's cool. I guess that wraps up the warm up section. We should get moving.